Hello, listener. We're at the end of season five, the season finale, and we're gearing up for our season five retrospective episode after this, where we'll be talking about all of season five, our favorite moments, favorite guest stars, top five favorite episodes of the season, all sorts of things. And we're once again asking for listener feedback. Write into us with your favorite moments or episodes, favorite anything from season five, and we'll feature your thoughts in our retrospective episode. You can write us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice recording. We'll play that on the podcast. And if we use your feedback on the show, we'll send you a postcard in the mail for free. So please write in to northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And for now, we're going to hop into the season five finale. Here we go. Ten years, man. I haven't even talked to her. She's uh, working for the geological survey, right? She's up there at the Copper River taking some water samples. Flips on the radio. There I am, Chris in the morning, playing this day, man. Just blew her away. Sleepless in Seattle. Wait, you see this woman, Ed? I mean, we're up here. We kind of, we kind of forget that the women are a little rugged, you know. Not that there's nothing wrong with that. It's just Meredith Swanson, man. Look at that. That's got to be her. Come on, man. All right, Lee, season finale, season five. We've made it once again to the end of a season. Yeah, this one just felt a little longer. I think we took a couple, or we took the normal amount of breaks because we like to break every eight episode, but I think some of those... Some of those breaks were quite long, so apologies for that, but... (laughs) Yeah, we are sorry for that, but... (laughs) We did finally get through it. We finally got through all five seasons. Well, we stopped. We had to do this uh, one. Now we got, this episode. That's true. We do have to. Do, we have to get through <laughs> this on one. Knock on wood. Right here. I think we can. Uh, we can make it through. <laughs> yeah, and I like that I talk about um, Sleepless in Seattle right here. W- wouldn't that have mm-hmm. been released like right around the time of this episode? Wow, I didn't even think of that. Uh, let me just double check that release date. Nineteen ninety-three. Yeah, so a year before this. Sure, it was a smash hit. I know it's like. Everyone still talks about that movie, so. Do they? I, I don't know. I do. I know that, like, we do, like, our generation. But, like, did the Zoomers talk about that? <laughs> yeah, I maybe not. they do. <laughs> I just want to see how much it made at the box office. Budget of $21 million, box office $227 million. So, yeah, smash hit, at least for the time. Maybe, maybe like Northern Exposure, lost to time. But I think people are still, <laughs> some people still talk about it. I always think of that joke from, um... What's that show? Do you know the show I'm talking about? How I Met Your Mother? Oh, yeah. He's like, uh, he's like, what are you doing? He's like, nothing. He's like, are you recreating the last scene in Sleepless in Seattle? He goes, how long have you been there? He's like, I just, I just walked in. Yeah, just the last scene. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So good. Yeah, I want to go back to like one little line that you said, but this this reminded me. There's like, I, I try to condense this as much as I can and make it make uh, as much sense. <laughs> but like, there is like this comedy routine that happens uh, called the Up Down Showdown, 
where these comedians debate about a certain topic. So for instance, they might talk about like breakfast versus dinner and which one's better. And they'll put on presentations and their comedic presentations to try to like persuade their audience that this is better. And like the one that I watched happened to be about the topic of breakfast versus dinner. And one comedian by the name of Brooks Whelan was talking about um, breakfast. And then he somehow just keeps segueing it until he starts talking about the breakfast club. Nice. <laughs> that like that's his <laughs> argument. And then he narrowed it down even more to where he just started talking about Emilio Estevez. Mm-hmm. And then he just started talking about the Mighty Ducks. And it, this is like all live. So he's just like yeah. putting on a slideshow presentation. This is going more and more buck wild. It's like the Mighty Ducks, therefore breakfast is the best. Yeah, essentially it's like what he came out with. But like it's a whole like eight minute presentation. Amazing. And in this presentation, I, I still remember this uh, punchline. He goes, all right, let's go through the Mighty Ducks. Produced by Walt Disney Picture. Budget, $10 million. Box office, $50 million. Domestic. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's like one of the funniest jokes. <laughs> Just that delivery sounds great too, in like a PowerPoint style. Yeah, I know. Wow. Anyway, we're not here to talk about Emilio Estevez. What are we here to talk about, Lee? We're talking about Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS TV series, where in season five, the very finale episode of season five. Wow. This is um, you know, we've got one season left after this. But we're still focused here on season five. I can remember our first episode this season, Charles, and we talked a lot about David Chase and just all the different, all the changes that are happening throughout the season. I got to say, by the end here, Charles, uh, you know, I, I, I'm starting to ease into it. I think maybe we bucked a little bit against the beginning, but uh, it's not it's not as bad as I feared and it's as good as I remembered. Yeah, I feel like this one... I like it because it directly borrowed from another plotline that we've already explored, one in which I did not think they were going to return to. Um, presumably, people have watched this episode, so it's not a spoiler. <laughs> but we're bringing back Cal, the person mm-hmm. that was really obsessed about the violin. He was institutionalized. And I talked about how uncomfortable that made me, how it was like really weird that Maurice wrecked this man's life. So I'm really happy that they brought it back. I don't know if... Joshua Brand and John Fousey would have had that strategy. I don't even know if that was intentional because mm-hmm. uh, what episode was that? Let's find it real fast. Okay. That was season five, episode 13, Might Makes Right. So within this season, um, but still, yeah, that, I, I, I wasn't expecting him to come back this season. I knew he was due for a return episode like this. And, and actually, I kind of forgot the way that it... Um, that it resolves sort of here at the end. And we're going to talk all about it when we get into the episode. Uh, but I can say this much. I could have been thinking of a later episode in season six in which Cal returns once again. Oh, so, um, okay. so yeah, this is not the last time we will see him. Got it. Yeah. I was just surprised that they would have the wherewithal and foresight right. to introduce a character that episode 13 and then decide either at the writing of the episode or whenever they got later down into production to be like, hang on, like, I like that plot line. Let's return back to it. There's themes which I want to explore in there. We can incorporate it into the other two plot lines, whichever way it was. Right. I thought that was kind of neat. I presume that David Chase has some say on that. So my hat's off to him if he did that. And I would say that overall, if you blindfolded me, I don't know if I would be able to tell you that it was not done by Joshua Brandon and John Fousey. 
Yeah, I feel like there are some some weird things happening in this season. And there's just like, you know, there's still really good episodes. And I think this is a pretty good one. Um, I want to also say just about Kyle Ingraham. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really loved that episode, Might Makes Right, and his plot line because there was just a lot to chew on. And I remember it having sort of a very downer ending, like sort of a... I don't know. Like we, 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 we struggled with that. Just like the implications of, um, the idea that like this man has been, was driven insane, you know? Uh, so I'm, I am glad that it comes back because it is so much to think about with this, uh, situation of the violinist and like the perfect violin and what that drives him to do. And then like, what is he doing? Like we can, we, we return to this character. That's not the end yet. So, but Sorry, just to get back overall, big picture idea. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Could we distinguish it from a season four episode? Apart from like, you know, the introduction, the reintroduction of Kyle Ingraham, who comes in uh, season five. Um, yeah, we got some classics like Barbara Szymanski in this episode returning, you know? So there's a, yeah, there's a lot of, um, I don't know, feel, feels familiar while being, you know, so far deep into the season, um, into the series. You know, Charles, I, I want to get this in real fast. A bit of trivia. I didn't know about this until well, I was just looking up the Moose Chick entry on this episode. Apparently, this episode was not originally slated to be the season finale. Apparently, the um, there's an episode in season six called Zarya, season six, episode six. That was originally intended to be this season finale, but they just couldn't finish it in time. So I think that's going to be sort of a bigger production that we'll see later in season six. But having said that, how do you feel about, I mean, we're just talking big picture, we'll get into the plots, but um, how do you feel about this as a season finale? If it didn't have Joel's plotline, I would say it would be really odd for a season finale. But because you have Joel's plotline and you have this theme of giving up a future relationship to salvage the past, I think that that works as a tone of finality. And I Mm. think that's why this one works. Yeah. Yeah, this actually is a great fit for a season finale. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't season four's finale the one with the tree? Which one's the one with the tree? That was season four. That was season four. Season three. Is that the history of Sicily? Yeah, that was like the one where they go back in time and there's like um, Franz Kafka or whatever, like Joel Place. Yeah. (laughs) That was a big production for sure. I wonder if Zarya is going to be sort of, I feel like Zarya is going to be like one of those where we go like one of those flashback or we do some sort of big frame story or something. Mm, okay season two sorry just looking back season two is slow dance which uh rick gets killed by the satellite and ron and eric come in and and uh mm-hmm. start the sourdough in and then of course season one finale aurora borealis with uh adam hmm. and like the whole the moon and all this oh no it wasn't the moon it was uh the aurora going crazy yeah uh i would say this one's up there yeah like I do think. I would say this one's up there on all the season finales right there. Uh, who wrote this episode? Who directed it? Yeah. In the credits here, the season finale is called Lovers and Mad Men, the 24th episode of season five. It was directed by James Heyman, who directed the season three episode, Jules et Joel. That was the one, it was like sort of Halloween style. And mm-hmm. Jules has this, or sorry, Joel apparently has this twin brother named Jules, but it was all a dream. Um, and I think James Heyman will continue to direct in season six. 
but that's his only credit before this one in, in Northern Exposure. The writer, Jeff Melvoin, who was, you know, I think he started with Dateline Sicily, Democracy in America, and then he's got a lot of like double header episodes in which he writes, or he's credited for writing two episodes in a row, like Ill Wind and Love's Labor Mislaid, um, Altered Egos, A River Doesn't Run Through It, which was this season. And then also again this season, Una Volta in Linverno and Fish Story back to back. So he's been all over this season and now the season finale, Lovers and Mad Men. Finally, the air date, May 23rd, 1994. And just since we're talking about dates real fast, I'll go ahead and say that the season six premiere is September 19th, 94. So same year in the fall. We're ending sort of like before the summer, like late spring, and we're coming back in the fall with season six. We'll get to that when we get there, but um, but yeah. Hmm, okay, nice. Yeah, I would say that he's got the touch. He knows how to, he really knows how to tap into that Northern exposure feeling right there. And I like that this one's air date kind of corresponds to what's happening on the screen. Since we got a mm. lot of snow melting, we can feel that mm -hmm. Things are starting to emerge on spring. It's kind of like that same feeling that I had on um, Jewels at Joel, where when we were recording that episode, I want to say it was like one week after Halloween. Yeah, it was so we were, Yeah, we were kind of, yeah. we, were, we were close to lining up. There have been a couple times in the podcast where we are close to lining up with the schedule of the original broadcast, but uh, inevitably we always fall off. Right. And uh, that sticks with you, man. For some reason, like, I remember distinctly if the episode lines up with the time in which we're watching it. I yeah. usually can remember that episode and, like, where I was when I was watching it, where we were when we recorded it, what I was saying. Yeah. I think those are really fun ones. But for this one, like I said, I think there's a lot of things that are melting and we're getting the past Coming back to haunt us. Mm. Well, I guess you're referring to perhaps the opening scene where Joel finds uh, like snow melting away. He finds something from the past. Let's go ahead and talk about that real fast. So we get, uh, I think, uh, starting with the close up on an orange golf ball. Joel is uh, getting, you know, go practicing, I guess. What do you call that? Is that called driving? Practicing a swing. The swing, yeah. Uh, he's, you know, I noticed in this episode, I mean, well, from this very first scene, Joel has some five o'clock shadow. We don't often see him unshaven like this. And I don't know that there's any indication in the episode to explain why he's his face is like a little more unkempt. Do you have any ideas what that's supposed to mean, maybe? It adds a little bit more oomph on the final scene. Yeah, I think so. He's a little more rugged and mm -hmm. we're talking about, uh, you kind of hinted at this earlier when we're talking about this as a season finale, but the idea that Joel is, you know, continually and maybe finally he has acclimated and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, assimilated to Sicilian life. But yeah, so that, that might have something to do with the... Um, the five o'clock shadow. Anyway, he's going to retrieve the balls because, you know, he's been putting away or golfing away, practicing his swing, and he slips on some melted snow, kind of like tumbles down into this ravine, and we get this uh, amazing sort of like, I guess you would call it like a higher angle, like crane-ish shot where we see from up above this giant woolly mammoth corpse that's, I guess, sort of like thawing and melting away or you know this it's it's yeah thawing defrosting yeah i know you've seen this film uh hot rod yes but do you remember that scene where andy samberg falls off a ledge for like 
two minutes straight. Yeah. It's just him continuing. And like, it, it would sometimes cut where like it would cut to an impossible angle. Like if he'd be falling from like right to left, suddenly like the camera would shift and when he's falling from like left to right yeah. somehow. It was just like an <laughs> infinite mountain. It would just keep falling like that. It's kind of how I felt for Joel Fleischman when he was uh, rolling off that ledge right there. Oh, geez. Yeah, it was a it was a long tumble. You think he did his own stunt right there? I guess that was a stunt. Yeah, was that a stunt double or... I don't know because he gets up pretty smoothly, man. I don't, I, I don't recall any cuts. So. Yeah, Rob Morrow wanted to wanted to pull off the stunt. I guess he did his own stunts right there. <laughs> but yeah, he discovers this mammoth right there, and then we cut two credits. So mm-hmm. let's go into the next plot line before we diverge from them. When we return, we're gonna be we're gonna be at K Bear with Chris and Ed, and Chris is doing a little cleaning because he's trying to impress someone. And that someone is Meredith. Meredith Swanson. Yeah, we sort of played the this, the opening soundbite that we played for this episode uh, is this scene that we're talking about now. And as you mentioned, Ed is helping Chris. Uh, they're cleaning up K-Bear. And uh, something that apparently never happens or has never happened. Chris is like, there's always the first, you know, first time for everything. And uh, yeah, Chris just talks about this Meredith person. I mean, you heard it in the soundbite, but uh, we we excluded all the like sort of ogling that Chris talks about in this scene from that soundbite. But he goes kind of he goes on and on to add about all the different you know ways he like saw he saw her like in the proper light, and you could see through her dress or something like that. I don't think he says it that explicitly, but um, yeah, he he kind of goes all out talking about. Uh, just how infatuated and obsessed he was with her beauty. He calls her Claudia Schiffer meets Venus de Milo. Yeah. Uh, Ed even describes her as Botticelli right there. Mm. There's a lot of references to art right here. And I think that's, I don't know if that's intentional or not, but I think it's kind of important because uh, when the punchline comes and she arrives in town and she gets out of her um, little RV, I'm not really too sure how to describe it. Yeah. What do you call it? It's like, it is a truck that's pulling like a camper or something. Yeah. Yeah. She steps out of there and it turns out that she's just an ordinary girl, which is absolutely fine. And I I, I knew that was going to happen. I was like, yeah, it's like, it's setting up so hard right, <laughs> right there. Right. But I think that there might be something there in which there's a lot of references to paintings because though paintings are what's appearing on the tapestry, it's not like the way that you view a painting is the same way as another person that's viewing the painting. Some person might be really touched and another person might just think that it's a splotch of paint that is just being dispersed. Uh, What I mean by this is that it can change uh, depending on when you view it. Like any other media. Like if you read a book when you're 14 and you read a book when you're 28, it might be completely different. Same thing with anything else. So I think that's kind of neat if they tried to tie it in right there. But otherwise, I think that like they used a lot of those terminology because they wanted it to be like an objective beauty is what they were mm-hmm. trying to paint her as. Yeah. Either way, at the end of the day, Chris is still a jack for doing this. <laughs> Yeah, he almost, you know, doesn't even recognize her. Uh, And I think, I know that he does it later in the episode, I'm pretty sure. Um, No, 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 in this scene, he, he, because later, I'm thinking of later where he's like, oh, come on, this is a joke. Like, you're not Meredith. That's, that's a later scene. But yeah, he hardly even recognizes her um, and is kind of gut punched in a way. But this is just the beginning of Chris's plot line. The final storyline we have in this episode is set up directly after this. The next scene, we see Maurice 
back at the mental hospital where uh, Cal Ingraham, the violinist, is being kept. If you remember from his previous appearance, he became infatuated with this Guarneri del Jesu violin that Maurice is collecting to, um, you know, turn a profit on later. Uh, it's just a good investment for him. And uh, he has Cal appraise this violin, uh, which, you know, Cal becomes infatuated with the violin, goes crazy and tries to blow up Maurice's, uh, well, does successfully blow up Maurice's truck. It's sent to this mental hospital. Though now Maurice is asking uh, to pull... Cal from the mental hospital to borrow him just for a little bit, I think just for a night, and then bring him back, uh, you know, before, what is it, like 10 o'clock in the morning the next day, because that's when they do sort of the roll call. You know, I'm remembering too, at the end of that last episode with Cal, it's insinuated that Maurice does return to the mental hospital from time to time and brings the violin to let Cal play it. Is that, I'm remembering that correctly? Yeah, he brings him back the violin because he says that it helps him cool off right there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that pretty much spells out the beginning of Maurice's plotline. So we got three things occurring right here. We got Joe and the Mammoth. We have Maurice in the fiddle. And we have Meredith and Chris. Which one should we explore first? Let's talk about Chris and Meredith. Meredith Swanson and uh, this whole progression of this storyline. So, uh, so the next time we do see Chris and Meredith, they're at the brick. And uh, they're getting ready to eat some lunch. Chris is just sort of staring at her as she's like talking about how much of a strange coincidence it is that they're meeting together. Because uh, even before she heard his voice on the radio, she had found an old hood ornament uh, that he had stolen for her. Something that he had did like back in high school. Stole this Mustang hood ornament because she always wanted a Mustang car. Uh, and given it to her, and she was like, just recovered it recently, like throwing around some old shoe boxes or something like that, you know, her old collected items. And then that same week, hearing his voice on the radio, she says, it feels like kismet. Though this whole time that she's sort of reliving this memory and talking about like, I always wish I could have known you better and could have spent more time with you back then. Like we never really knew each other. Chris is still just kind of staring her down and is confused about, you know, the color of her hair, the length of it. Like, what's different? What changed? Is it that you plucked your eyebrows? Things like that. Right. There's this theme running throughout the entire episode of finding things from the past. So for Meredith, it's finding that hood ornament. And for Mm -hmm. Chris, it's finding her. And because of that, Chris is just remembering, like, a past idealistic version that exists only in his mind, a past perception. And Meredith is doing the same thing, though Meredith is, is... like, I guess more noble in a way, because she's thinking about like how much she wants to connect with him and talk with him and things. And Chris, all he's remembering is just like the physical attributes. He's just remembering like the hair, the eyebrow, the clothing, like all those things. And that's, you know, a little bit more of a shallow reason right there. But regardless, there's this idea that's concurrently running throughout all the plot lines of people remembering things. Right. And Chris, you know realizes how much of a jerk he's being. He sort of like apologizes quickly, but, um, you know, we can see now that I, something about Meredith's reaction is like, Oh, oh, never mind, never mind, Cause he wasn't listening to anything. She just said, he, he apologizes and is like, I'm sorry. What, what were you saying? Like, it's, I'm, I'm totally an idiot here. She says, Oh, it's nothing. And like eats the burger. She's like, this burger is good or whatever. I don't know. It, it's a bit of a downer moment there. But the next time we see Chris and Meredith, 
Chris is walking with Shelly to go see Meredith. Uh, <laughs> I just noticed like, because this scene comes directly after a scene with Cal, um, Shelly's earrings are, what's the word? Obvious, I guess, just very, they're very large violins hanging from her ears. <laughs> yeah. They definitely, I feel like the costumer or props or whoever's in charge of these earrings, it's kind of, it reminds me of like Dino in the West Wing with CJ's like goldfish. There's always like mm-hmm. some sort of little trinket inside of the aquarium that is, um, some sort of like comment on the episode. Like it's, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, but do you remember any of them? Do you know what I'm talking about though, by the way? Ah, uh, I, I, I do, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. But they put like little, I don't know. Yeah, it's just like an overt reference toward it. Yeah, exactly. Like for instance, big block of cheese day. Maybe there's like a little cheese or something inside of like a little uh, sculpture of cheese or something inside of the aquarium. <laughs> right, right. This episode, we've got giant violins on Shelly's ears. Yeah, they also match clothing. They're both wearing tan coats. Uh, I talked about this yeah. last episode. <laughs> the Rick Perry jacket. Barn coat. Yeah, a little Rick Perry barn coat right there. So they're matching right there, and he's got a blue undershirt, and Shelly's got a blue hair ribbon. So it's kind of cute to see that being matched right there. But yeah, they're walking down the street. Chris is going to meet up with Meredith after spending the night with her. And then he meets her and it's played by a different actress, um, which is kind of a neat idea. Them pulling different actresses to play Meredith. Yeah. But yeah, she emerges and she just doesn't look the same. Uh, and, and Chris freaks out. I mean, she looks like a witch is what he says. I, you know, at first I thought it was the same actress with drastic makeup change because she has like a giant mole now. Her hair seems unwashed. Her teeth are stained. But after a couple of seconds, I realized, yeah, this is a completely different actress. And I think that that is a pretty fun choice to do. And uh, if you haven't guessed it yet, like the next time he sees her, it's going to be yet another actress. It's going to continue to change. But uh, yeah, this is the scene where Chris is like, come on, this must be a joke. Like, stop, stop playing the joke on me. And um, he really feels like an after this because... Uh, Meredith is just like, oh, hold on, I'll, I'll be right out. And she goes back in. Right. And this prompts Chris to go do a checkup on his brain because he thinks there might be like a lesion that's pressing up on it. Something in which it's <laughs> causing him to see uh, something that's causing him not to see reality the way he wants to see it. And Joel talks to him and says like, no, like if you were having that, you'd be talking to a parking meter. It'd be much more extreme. But Chris fights back and says like, no, I'm telling you, she's a completely different person. And Joel has like the, the winning thesis line of this episode. He says, look, we've all, for whatever reason, had times where people we remember aren't the way we remembered them. And that's right there, <laughs> right on the money. Ding, ding. That's the singular line that you want, that you just print it out, stable it, bolt it to the hood of your car. Yeah. This scene, uh, a couple of things I liked in this scene. They mention, uh, it's like, you know that book about the man who mistook his wife for a hat? Do you know this book, Charles? No, I did not know that book. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. <laughs> but it's by um, Oliver Sacks, who they talk about a lot on Radiolab. I think there's actually an episode about him. Um, that's how I originally heard about this book and about this man. Very interesting, uh, I guess, neurological 
disorders or problems, uh, things with the brain and, and things like that. So definitely fits with what Chris thinks is happening with him. And as you said, Charles, Joel is like, no, 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 no. Like if there was something wrong, you would be talking to like doorknobs or something like it would be more broad. The symptoms would be more broad. Uh, I think ultimately it's just like, you know, give this a day or two. It could just be stress, uh, stress related. Uh, if there's ever a, really a problem we we can fly you to Anchorage or something and figure it out. But, um, but yeah, Chris is kind of left with just having to deal with it for right now. I do, uh, yeah, I think um, as you're saying, Charles, yeah, this is kind of the the solution, the thesis to this episode, or the you know the statement of this episode here, where they're talking about memory and our perceptions and how we remember things and how we want to remember things. I want to bring up this movie Lost Highway because I actually watched it um, the day. I, so I watched this episode, Charles, yesterday. Mm-hmm. And before I watched it, I went and saw David Lynch's Lost Highway. He's got like a new, what would you call it? Not re-release, but uh, like- Remaster? Remaster. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, what's the word? Restoration. I guess 4K restoration. I think it's 4K restoration of Lost Highway. But there is a scene- uh, I think the whole movie kind of is about like perceptions and memories and thinking and getting kind of lost in your head. But um, there's a scene that I thought was really great in the movie. Basically, just a quick summary of the premise here. A uh, man and a woman, like husband and wife, um, receive this VHS tape like at, with the mail, like at their house, and they watch it. And on the tape is like someone recording their house and then someone like, you know, they're like inside the house recording the inside. Like it starts on the outside, like someone has a camcorder and is just like filming the outside of their house. And then later it goes inside the house and it's like in the different rooms. So they call some detectives over to like figure out what's going on. And I'll play you a little clip from this movie, but uh, it's the detectives are asking if the husband and the wife, do they own a video camera? Do you want a video camera? No. Fred hates them. I like to remember things my own way. What do you mean by that? How I remembered them. Not necessarily the way they happened. Yeah, that scene is so great in the movie because it's so just like such long pauses and there's like no music. It's just so still and awkward. Uh, but I thought that was such uh, interesting reasoning. I mean, it makes sense, you know, <laughs> but such an interesting reasoning why this man doesn't want a video camera. And I think it has a lot to do with like the ideas in that movie, but I think we could also apply it to this episode, uh, this quandary or this problem that Chris has is uh, his memory uh, is not necessarily lining up with the way things actually happened. It's the way he wanted to remember it, maybe, subconsciously. And you know, there actually is a deleted scene in this episode. Uh, There's a couple deleted scenes on the DVD, but there's a deleted scene in which Chris is looking through an old yearbook, I guess, trying to find Meredith's picture. Shelly comes in and he's explaining to her, it looks like, you know, maybe one of her friends or someone who was mad at her got a hold of Chris's yearbook and scratched out her face. So he can't, he doesn't have the video camera, the videotape, you know, the way things, uh, what is it in, in Lost Highway where he says uh, it, the way it necessarily happened, but he can only remember her the way that he remembers her, which as it turns out um, was was false. And then 
Currently, some weird northern exposure stuff is happening when it just gets worse and worse, it seems. Right. Because she, she becomes a, a witch, as he calls it. I think that's super fascinating. Uh, on the Lost Highway thing, mm-hmm. whenever he wants to have a, it's more of a control thing, I want to say, where mm-hmm. he wants to remember how he remembered right at that moment in his mind so that there's no physical record or anything that will change his perception. Uh, I also recently rewatched a film that I don't touch often, even though it's one of my favorite films. I had just rewatched Liz and the Bluebird mm. and it was much better than what I remember, uh, even though I already had a very high opinion of it. But the thing about it is that I don't like to touch it at all. I don't like to read any analysis on it. I don't want to see any scenes from it because I have a fear that it will lose just like a little bit of that spark, that mm. little bit of magic whenever you go just like too much into it. And that's not to say that I don't rewatch things all the time. I've rewatched uh, K-On! and West Wing hundreds of times and I still love them dearly. It's just that with delicate films, you don't want to keep revisiting over and over and over again right there. And I'm mm. glad that I did revisit it because I picked up on some things that I didn't notice beforehand. I was noticing that like, oh, like this light motif actually combines with this light motif whenever the characters reconcile. I realized where they were being partitioned off on the screen so as to create the effect that they're together whenever you pull the camera back. There's like a whole bunch of things that I never noticed on the first time. But I think that's actually something in which like, I don't know if like a lot of other people do, but like I definitely do for this film where I just don't want to touch it and I want it to remain how I think of it very similarly to that character in Lost Highway right there. Yeah. You know, I I can relate to what you're saying, Charles, uh, about maybe overanalyzing something or just wanting to to watch it like it was the first time you watched it or without too much scrutiny. You know, we do for this podcast, we watch, we take notes as we watch, but you know, it would be if we had the time, it would be nice. I think the proper way to analyze a movie or TV is just to watch it the first time without thinking about, you know, digging into it too deep. And then you could come back and really, really get into it. But there's something about, um, there's something about movies and TV and probably a lot of art that is not necessarily cerebral. It's more about a feeling. Uh, I don't know. It's really hard to describe for me right now. But I think you understand what I'm saying, maybe, um, because it, maybe it relates to your relationship to this movie that you're talking about, uh, Liz and the Bluebird. Yeah. But just sort of like, um, I don't know, letting it wash over you in a way. Yeah. I find that like the first time I watch anything, if it's like completely new, I will not catch a lot of the tricks that they used. Like, how do they shoot this? What were the framings that they were using? What does this thing symbolize? A lot of those will fly past my head on the very first watch. It takes me multiple watches to be able to catch on to something to be like, oh, okay, I understand why they're being framed in this manner. I understand uh, the decisions that the filmmakers are doing right there. But yeah, I'm watching um, a Deno coil right now and I'm not taking notes whatsoever. I'm just letting it fly by. And it's like a very quirky sci-fi uh, show and I was like, <laughs> like it's a blast. If like, you don't, especially for sci-fi, we need to like learn how the language of the world works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like I'm not rewinding, so I'm just like, <laughs> all right, whatever. It flew, the dialogue flew past. I'm not rewinding. I'm just yeah. gonna accept things the way they are. <laughs> there are certain there are certain movies I'm thinking of. I always think of the movie Primer, where there it feels like there are more than one conversation happening at the same time. Like so much information is being thrown at you 
at the same time. It's like it has multiple layers at, at once. And I don't think it's, I don't think you're supposed to comprehend it all at once. I think it's supposed to feel like watching the movie is supposed to feel like you're being overburdened with the information. Uh, it has, it has that specific effect, I think, at least for me, I think for most people, but, um, I can see sci-fi just being like, you know, that's, I think what's great about sci-fi world building is like, you don't have to understand exactly what they're talking about as long as it feels like it's a real world. You know, that, that maybe is part of what makes it feel real is that they talk about things without explaining what that means. Like, what is it in Star Wars, the, uh, Kessler run and parsecs or whatever, (laughs) you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need to understand what that means. And I think if you look at it scientifically, I think it's actually inaccurate because they're talking about distance and time, parsecs or something like that. But anyway, it just feels like good world building. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, let's return back to Chris and his dilemma. The next time we see him is in the brick where he's talking with Shelly and he's been moaning on how he views Meredith. And Shelly counters back and says, like, this is like totally like Mm -hmm. judging someone on being a piece of meat. I've had this occur to me all the time because I used to be someone I used to do beauty pageants and people would have to grade me professionally. And Chris tries to explain his way out of this and says that it's a biological thing. Like we want to look at a healthy mate. That's what drives us toward uh, proliferation. It's not my fault. And Shelly says, whatever. Like, I just know that, like, love is even greater than infatuation. And at the end of the day, whenever I grow old, Holling is still going to love me, even though I'm not as young as I am right now. Yeah, when Chris is talking about how, like, sexual attraction is biologically hardwired into our brains, he's like, it's not our fault. This is just, like, the way we're wired. But I severely disagree with that. Like, you know, you should still have enough brains to know that he's being discriminatory against Meredith because of the way she looks. Uh, he told, Oh, <laughs> I also have this directly after in my notes. He says, uh, that a witch, he, he called her a witch and he says, that's Jungian, isn't it? Just because she's not snow white, I turned her into the crone with the poison apple. So I think that's what's going on in his head. That's the explanation he gives for why he sees her as a witch. Now, this is also a scene with Walt, right? Yeah, and I wanted to comment on that because Shelly says the line, but come the first trace of cellulite, they dump you like yesterday's halibut and it cuts to Walt and he's like staring at them as if to insinuate that he is yesterday's halibut. And I thought he wasn't, I thought the scene was going to involve him at all. I was like, that's so mean. Yeah, like he's just <laughs> sitting there listening to them and they're talking, like he feels like yeah. they're talking about him or something. Like if he could talk like to the camera, he'd be like, why are you cutting to me? Like, what do you, this is a scene involving Chris like, and Jelly. Yeah, it's like, I'm not, what are you looking at me for? Yeah. But he does have, he does have things to say. Yeah, he talks there is a about, reason. Yeah, go ahead. There is a reason why they cut to him is because, He talks about this love that he used to have. He says like, oh, there was this woman that I was in love with, but she developed alopecia, which is where you lose all your hair. And I just couldn't look past that. It was such foolish behavior for me because she was the love of my life right there. Yeah. Beatrice Anderson, he says, uh, you know, he, he can also chime into this conversation about uh, the errors of like judging people and expecting people to look like one thing when that's not the reality. And did we mention already, though, the scene starts with Shelly handing Chris a note from Meredith. You know, basically, Meredith says she's leaving. And Shelly says, uh, well, Chris is like, oh, you read the note? And Shelly's like, no, she told me. We talked about this or whatever. 
So that will cue us to the next scene with Chris, which is like trying to catch Meredith before she leaves. Chris returns to Meredith's trailer and he's sort of talking to her through the door because he's outside and he's trying to apologize. And a third Meredith exits the trailer, a new actress playing Meredith. This one, traditionally beautiful. And Chris sees her this way now um, because I guess of the, the, you know, the feelings that are going through his mind and the thoughts that are going through his mind right now. Yeah, it's exactly what you said. And we touched upon that earlier with Chris where he's saying that like, his uh, his reality just couldn't match up with his idealistic self. And he says, like, the image is distorted by our own personal lenses. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised they didn't go for, like, an even heavier metaphor. So, like, you have the idea of personal lenses, and they use the word image being distorted. You would have thought that, like, they would have said, like, the picture distorted by our own personal lenses. And, like, maybe if you slip in the word camera, like, if you tie in the word camera, picture, and lenses. You get the idea that like the lens is the middleman and it's being smudged and therefore affecting the final product. I don't know if that's making any hmm. sense. I'm like, I, I, have, I have writer brain. So I'm just <laughs> trying to like find the most metaphor thing I can find. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, trying to draw that metaphor even stronger there. I appreciate that. But I also like that they talk about here, you know, Meredith herself admits to her own form of... Um, projections. They talk about this is, they're only, they're projecting what they want to see. Meredith talked about how she dreamed of getting together with Chris and living out a life in Alaska. Like when she heard his voice on the radio, she even admitted like kind of in one of the first scenes where we see with Chris and Meredith, she admits that she never really knew Chris when they were growing up, but she's heard his voice now, remembers her past and maybe has her own ideas of what he's like and what it would be like with him. But um, she says, funny, the games we play. I mean, we don't even know each other, do we? Though I agree with you, Charles. I think he said this at the beginning of our podcast. Chris, I think, is more in the wrong than she is um, <laughs> because it, maybe it's more, I don't know, like wrong than she is. But now he says, I think I can get beyond it. You know, like, I think we can make this work out. She says something like, you're sweet. And then like kisses him and leaves. So yeah, I like that. Uh, I think you already said this up top. What, what were you saying, Charles? Something like revisiting the past, but leaving it, you know, not necessarily trying to like exhume it, like recognizing it, but keeping it in the past, maybe. Yeah, mostly it's this idea that you want to, you, you give up the idea of having a future by salvaging the past. Mm. And they're giving up their idealistic versions of what they think of one another and possibly the relationship. I don't know if she's ever going to come back into mm -hmm. Northern Exposure. I hope she does. I think that she's a fun character and everything. Uh, I think that one thing that actually plays into that idea is that when she gets into her vehicle, uh, it's a pretty nice shot. She gets in and then the camera actually still reveals her face. On the rear view. Oh, on the, the side view? Yeah. Yeah. The mirror. Yeah, side view mirror. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't even notice that, but that is a pretty clutch. I like that. <laughs> yeah. So it's looking back right there. Mm. So he's literally and figuratively looking back at Chris and trying to remember who he is right now mm -hmm. instead of just imagining what she thinks in her mind. I think that's a very pleasant shot. I think they must have done that on purpose. There's no way. Otherwise, they would have been like, hey, uh, her face is in the shot. Like, yeah, exactly. In that mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, the, it kind of is tricky sometimes to catch those reflections. So 
the fact that it is there, you know, they had to set the camera in a certain spot, tell the actress maybe to sit in a certain spot even, you know, it's like maybe scooch a little mm-hmm. to the left whenever you sit in there. Uh, but that is awesome when you can line it up like that. Uh, but that with Chris, not the final scene with Chris, we should talk about the very last scene with Chris now in K-Bear. I bet I could just play, There's I have the soundbite. He reads from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, the Lovers and Mad Men, where the, where the title comes from. Here, let's listen. Lovers and madmen have such seething brains, such shaping fantasies, that apprehend more than cool reason ever comprehends. The lunatic, the lover, and the poet are of imagination all compact. One sees more devils than vast hell can hold, that is the madman. The lover, all his frantic, sees Helen's beauty in the brow of Egypt. Talking perceptions, people, do we? We really see each other for what we really are, or do we just see what we want to see? The image distorted by our own personal lenses. I lost someone today, and the funny thing is, I don't even know who she was. Yeah, an apt reading for the end of this episode, an apt title, I'd say. Can't go wrong with Shakespeare. Yeah, he ties it all up in a neat little ribbon right there, saying that he didn't even really know who she was. He was just ensorcelled by this idea of her. I like this theme. I've always been a big fan of that theme of identity and not really constructing people in the way that they should be constructed and mm-hmm. misimagining them, which is doing a disservice to not only to them, but also to yourself. Like you can't allow yourself to believe that this individual was like uh, falling into a label of manic pixie dream girls. You can't imagine to like, oh, like they must be my soulmate because they have this amount of interest or they look this amount of way. It's always a very lovely lesson. I, I don't really grow tired of it. I, I know some people do. They say like, oh, I've seen this. I've seen this type of lesson done before, but like, I don't know. It always rings true. It's very interesting to me too. Yeah. Just the idea that our memories, how we remember things, how we project what we want to see. It's um very interesting. I, I really am curious to actually go and read that uh, man who confused his wife for a hat. Cause I wonder if there's more interesting, you know, neurological problems in there as well. Uh, not saying that Chris is uh, ha- has some sort of medical problem here, but it's just fascinating the way our brains work and how we form our ideas of people, uh, which is, again, I guess to tie it back to that lost highway and that scene with uh, Joel and Chris, but it's like not necessarily how it actually happens, like the videotape, but it's just the way we want to see things. That's Chris. Let's reel it back to the beginning and let's talk about Mr. Cal Ingraham and Maurice. All right. The next scene is with Barbara Szymanski, who is coming in town for her birthday. Maurice is surprising her with a neat little dinner. Ed's playing the butler and that's why he needed to get Cal because he wanted to do a one man fiddle show. Right. Oh, you know what's funny? We didn't talk about this, but when Maurice goes to the... uh, mental hospital. Cal is playing violin there. And it's like, it's not the kind of music you would expect him to be playing. Like it doesn't sound like Bach or classical. It sounds kind of like, I don't know, almost sounds kind of like Cajun music to me, but it's, you know, it's more like bluegrassy, like country fiddle playing. Uh, Though here in this setting that we get with Szymanski for her surprise, uh, he is taking out the Guarneri del Jesu and playing, um, just this stunning piece of music. We've got, as you said, Ed is butler serving some Cristal champagne. And um, 
Szymanski, you know, at, at first calls out, you know, like, what is Cal doing here? You know, he's a criminal. And uh, Maurice corrects her, like, not necessarily a criminal, but like criminally insane. So there's a difference or whatever. Uh, he lies to Szymanski and says, like, he's got, you know, he's got visitation or whatever. He's got like, you know, he can go out, you know, which is, uh, if we haven't made it clear already, Maurice is breaking some laws by getting Cal, you know, he's bribing some orderly or some doctor to let Cal come out. But there, there's something about Szymanski in this episode that I really like. And I think we can begin to see it in this very first scene. It's, you know, a difference from how we normally see Szymanski, where she is unmoving and she like is fixated on the law and we'll put that above everything else. And I think that's still very true to her, but we see more now that she's willing to give Maurice some leeway, um, especially by the end of the episode. But here, you know, she doesn't necessarily disrupt the celebrations here. She lets, you know, this criminally insane man play violin for her because, well, one, it is stunningly beautiful. And I think uh, I just have to congratulate Maurice. Like, I think he he made just the most perfect birthday surprise. I think, I think Szymanski would agree just by like seeing her reaction to this, uh, to this violin, but it's all lined up perfectly, I think. Yeah, I think it's important to note that Maurice makes a distinction already between him being like a violent criminal and someone who's just having a lapse of judgment sometimes. He also remarks how he loves this fiddle, this object, right there. It gives him such delight. And we kind of see this played in the next scene that follows immediately afterwards, which mm -hmm. is just going to be Cal and Ed eating the leftovers. Mm -hmm. And Cal remarks how there are maybe only like a dozen violins in the world that could produce that timbre, that sound that he was producing. And he could still feel the effects of the violin that was against his skin. I don't really have much to say on that. Like, I'm not too sure that scene was necessarily needed. Mm -hmm. It really just bolsters again his his love for this specific violin. Yeah. And that's underlined because it's actually just Ed who's eating the leftovers and he's asking Cal, hey, could you pass me this? Cal is more just uh, interested in recounting that experience of playing the music. And Ed is politely listening, but his motive for this scene is just to eat more, eat more leftovers. And uh, yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well. Cal's talking about the the moment where he talks about like feeling the way the violin, it's like it's on fire in a way, like it's alive with some sort of passion and he can still feel it on his uh, neck or his shoulder. Uh, just, yeah, I think, I think it's just underlining his infatuation there. But to continue with Cal and Maurice, well, actually it's Maurice the next morning waking up and Szymanski in a robe, in that like NASA robe, so she spent the mm -hmm. night. This is the next morning. I love their plan for the day. Maurice is just like, I think he's getting ready in a mirror. Szymanski's in the background and she comes to him as he's uh, dictating their schedule for the day. Eggs, Benedict, and Bloody Mary's at 0800. 0900, drop Cal off at the lollipop factory, he says. I forget if he says lollipops in that episode, Might Makes Right, the first episode with Cal. Mm -hmm. I guess that's a slang for crazy people or something for this, this mental hospital calls it the yeah, lollipop I tried googling factory. It. I tried Googling it and I couldn't really find much right, right. Uh, right on it. Uh, what I think is really important in this scene is that he's designating this plan and the plan is going to go haywire immediately <laughs> showing that you can't really plan for the future. You need to settle what's happening right here because Cal has escaped 
Yeah. And yeah, uh, Morty's kind of goes and checks on uh, Gwyneri. He makes sure that it's still in the in the case. And it is. But we find out that Cal has like definitely busted out because Ed says <laughs> like, yeah, I saw him out. And he was running. Yeah. Uh, Ed is like vacuuming. He's like, oh, yeah, it's fine. I just saw Cal just a moment ago. He's out jogging. <laughs> and that's I mean, jogging like he's running away Ed. like, come on, we got to catch him. Yeah, funny that the violin is still there, though I guess um, I guess Cal wouldn't know how to open the safe regardless. Mm-hmm. Uh, remember whenever in that episode where he blows up Maurice's truck, I actually originally thought he was going to try to blow the safe with the explosives. But no, yeah, I think the safe is just impenetrable for him. So he, he really can't get in there. So uh, he just runs instead. And I guess it makes sense. He would rather some form of freedom, I guess, than to have to go back to the um, the mental hospital. I guess we'll get into that when we catch up to him. But um, obviously there's going to be a change of plans, as you said. Uh, Samansky comes downstairs and Maurice tries to cover. He says, Chris is going to come pick you up, Barbara. We'll go skeet shooting instead later in the afternoon. So yeah, the, the hunt is on for Cal Ingraham. Uh, I think the next time we see Maurice is actually when... Is it the scene where Szymanski like figures out what's going on? No, the next scene is them trying to track down with Cal. Blood, oh, using the bloodhounds. Blood Got it. Yeah. Why, yeah. why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a relatively simple scene. Um, not much to talk about because it's just Ed with two bloodhounds that Maurice got from the warden over at uh, Harrisonville. Yeah. And they're trying to track down a scent to get Cal. But it turns out that Cal made it to the river and... I'm not too sure if it's like the dogs can't cross the river or if Ed doesn't want to cross the river. But regardless, their trail ends cold. And Ed has to return back to work at Ruthann's to deal with inventory. Might be stretching a little bit too much right here, but I do think it's kind of neat how they're using uh, the past to track down the future. Like, how do you mean? So they're using the piece of the Gwinnery and they're going to introduce these dogs yeah, and these dogs can track and find them, um, but they can only do so by using something that used to belong to them, or at least something they used to use. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, maybe that is, I, I can see that for sure, but I think that, you know, whatever whatever the bloodhounds have to track, it has to be something that he's touched before or used. But you can draw that uh, that comparison of like, well, specifically the Granary I see, very old. Uh, so the past, perhaps. Uh, I think you're right, though. I think the scent maybe is lost once they hit the river, but obviously also Ed is not going to um, go through that river. It's uh, Maurice is, is on the radio with Ed right now. Like Ed is leading these bloodhounds and Maurice is on a walkie-talkie elsewhere, and he's got a map, and he tells Ed, yeah, that's just a tributary of the Elkhorn River. It's pretty small on the map. Well, Ed is like, well, in person, it's not small at all. So um, yeah, Ed's going to go back to work. It's funny because he's like, uh, sorry, Maurice, I got to leave now. <laughs> it's like, what did what was the plan? Ed, Ed was like out all morning with Maurice and now he has to go to work at Ruthann's store. Oh, well. Right. Well, it carries over very cleanly into the next scene where we don't get any pauses. We find out immediately that it's news now that Cal has escaped mm-hmm. because Barbara gets that there's a missing APB. person report. Yeah. APB for this person. And this is where you get in like that first sort of conflict between Maurice because he's saying, look, I only did it for you, Barbara, because you're one of a kind and I wanted you to have a one of a kind birthday. Mm-hmm. And Barbara says like, that's not good enough. I want you to bring him back. 
and I don't think I can ever trust you again. And Maurice says, give me one more chance. I like, I promise I'll live up to my word and I'll get them back for you. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about when I don't think we've ever seen Szymanski like this before, because knowing her character, I think she would immediately like arrest Maurice for like, you know, assisting this escape or whatever. But she does give him another chance. Maurice says, let me prove it to you. He's going to try to win her trust back. And I think that's pretty cool because we know maybe it's even cooler just because her character up to this point has always been so strict and the law is above everything else. Now we can see that when things are starting to go really well with Maurice and Szymanski together, we can see her her heart kind of come through more and her, I don't know if you'd call it a crush, but just like the way she loves Maurice is taking over other parts of her life and taking precedence over the law now. She's actually bending the law to allow Maurice to make things right within the law. He's going to make things right within the law, but she has to overlook a couple things to allow that to happen. I think it's so neat. Right. Uh, and then immediately cuts. It, I think it just keeps going, honestly, on this plot line. It, it, right. it keeps on it for like 20 minutes, like 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> well, the next um, scene, right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, because the next thing they find Cal, well, Ed does at least, because he's going down into the basement of Ruth Ann's to go, I think he's like cleaning out some mice with the use of a cat. Bartholomew. And he stumbles upon, yeah, <laughs> he stumbles upon Cal, and um, I'm not too, like, I kind of wish they didn't have this scene and would have replaced it with one of the scenes that you talked about, because I think they might have advanced the plot a little bit better, or at mm -hmm. least revealed information that would have been more pertinent. But in this one, Really, what's happening is that Ed's saying, like, I thought you would have been, you know, hundreds of miles gone. Mm -hmm. And Cal says, like, I, I kind of was, but I had to come back because I couldn't leave the Guarneri. I have to go and be with her. Yeah, if you think about it, like, Cal's all over the place in this episode. And it kind of all happens off screen until here when Ed is like, wait, shouldn't you be gone? And, and we learn that Cal returned, came back for the Guarneri, uh, but now is going to have to, like, I don't know. Doesn't he like go back even further? Cause the next time we see him, he's like in a barn out in the wilderness or something. Yeah. He has no real plan though. That's the thing <laughs> is I like, even if he comes back, there's no way for him to get that safe. Even if he kills Maurice, he <laughs> yeah. still has no way to get into that safe other than like, I don't know, like torturing him, I guess, or just like straight up taking the safe and, uh, finding some illegal way to open it. Yeah, safe cracker or just like some way to blow it open, which I think he's a averse to because he didn't blow it up the first time. He instead blew up Maurice's truck. Um, it's interesting when, when Cal does leave this scene, he's like climbing out of the basement. He's like, promise, let's, let's keep this between the two of us, Ed. It's cool because as he's climbing out, it's very dark in the basement, but Ed's flashlight beam is shot directly on Cal's face so that we can see him because it's it's not normally lit. It's so dark. But I just thought that was funny. Using that flashlight within the scene as a uh, a means to light the scene as well. Right. It's a practical light. <laughs> anyway, so the next time we see Maurice is he's asking for Holling's help. We can tell Holling is acting a bit perturbed that Maurice didn't ask for his help sooner. Like Holling is whittling away at some wood and he's like, you know, I'm pretty busy right now. Turns out he's like, uh, he's mad at Maurice for not asking him in the first place. Yeah, I don't know. I guess Maurice just asked Ed or he just used the bloodhounds because he thought that would work. Um, it turns out uh, from what we see here, 
Maurice should have been asking Holling way sooner because Holling is incredibly good at tracking, <laughs> as we can see in these scenes that we'll talk about. Uh, I did want to quickly just mention, because we were talking a bit about the deleted scenes just now, you're like, maybe they should have kept one of those deleted scenes in. Uh, in that scene with Shelly and Chris, I was talking about how Chris is looking through an old yearbook. Shelly is dropping off baby Miranda. She has this pretty great uh, watermelon outfit. Miranda has this watermelon outfit on that that Marilyn, I guess, sewed for her. It's pretty cute. But um, Shelly is dropping off Miranda because she says that they, I think she is implying hauling in her, they are going up to sleep mute for a bit or maybe for the night. I don't know what the occasion is. There wasn't another deleted scene that explained that, but this would start getting really confusing. Like if Shelly and Holly are in sleep mute, how is Holling performing this like, uh, you know, tracking that they're trying to do? They're trying to track down. Yeah. Everyone's all over the place in this episode. Well, with the deleted scene re- removed, you know, it, it seems to make sense, but it would have been a little confusing. Right. Uh, I think there's one vital piece of dialogue in this scene that I guess is why they had to include it, other than the fact that they had to rope in hauling for this whole ordeal. He says, if we start a circular search, beginning with the last point of contact, we should pick up something. And what hauling is meaning is that you have to return back to the beginning and then you can start mm-hmm. from there yeah. and find what you're looking for. Yeah, go back to the beginning. Yeah, and it, it literally does make sense for tracking someone practically, but metaphorically, as you're suggesting, Charles, yeah, it kind of ties into a theme perhaps of the past. Uh, right off the bat, he's like, well, I can tell you he didn't cross the Elkhorn because the water's too swift this time of year. And as you said, Holling is betting that Cal got to the river, saw the uh, the water, the width and the speed of the water and decided to turn back around. So now, you know, we can assume that Cal is near. We just got to track him down. So that next time we see Holling and Maurice, let's see, uh, Holling, <laughs> Holling is doing some more like Aragorn, like track, like really good tracking. And he picks up like a stick off the ground, licks it, tastes it. It's like some chalky residue that comes from the stones near the riverbank. It's still fresh. So this stick either was carried on a shoe or like was crumpled by a shoe that was near those the stones near the river uh so it proves the theory he also finds like a branch that's like pushed away and he can indicate oh it was pushed away by a left-handed person or something like that i don't know but they uh, that's not as important thematically what they're talking about in this scene is how holling's like you know isn't it such a shame that you made this guy crazy basically with the violin and 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 maurice is like is it my fault so what if his life is ruined? He brought it on himself. Yeah, I'm surprised it actually took Northern Exposure this long to actually address it in this manner, but I'm glad that they did. But they finally talk about what Maurice essentially did, and uh, the important thing to mark in this dialogue is that he's saying that, like, I could turn it over tomorrow for a 20% profit. So you're seeing Maurice is not looking at this in the same way that Cal is looking at this. He's saying, like, this is simply just something in which I could use as an investment. And Cal obviously loves the thing. So this is where the dichotomy comes in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would say Maurice is. Yeah, I don't know. What, how, so I'm assuming you think that Maurice is in the wrong for uh, or I think Maurice is in the wrong for a lot of things. But uh, I don't think. It's Maurice's fault that uh, that Cal became a 
became a madman. I don't know exactly what, how do we, de- how do we determine the, the fault or blame for that? Like what exactly happened? It seems almost supernatural, but can this happen? Is this something we can put blame to Maurice for? Well, from my recollection, Maurice does have a point in that he could not have given the Guarneri to Cal without recuperating the full cost of him buying it. If, uh, I, I want to say that Cal said that he might luck into some money. And even if he did luck into that money, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be um, enough for the full amount of the Guarneri. But Maurice was simply having the Guarneri as an investment. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going to actually play it. He wasn't going to do anything with it. And it was such a rare object that's meant to be played. Uh-huh. And you can make the argument and say, they're like, well, it's his to buy. It's his to do. You can do whatever you want with it. But I feel like maybe it's like a different subject whenever it's a musical instrument compared to like a painting. Though you could also make the argument that like the painting's meant to be seen. So it has like a purpose. If you store it away in a closet, then it does nothing. In the same way that a musical instrument, if you don't play it. Oh, wait. No, no, hang on. I remember why. I don't know if we ever got to the bottom of this. It's because if you don't play the Guarneri, right. it it breaks. Or it becomes, yeah, it could become dead. That we actually did read that, you know, you can technically bring them back to life. I don't, I don't know. It's, there's not a hard science about it. Right. That was the reason why I was like, I, I, I painted him more as a villain because of that factor. Well, what I'm, I see, I think I was, I think what you're suggesting, yeah, is I think it's wrong that Maurice is keeping this instrument, you know, locked up in a safe. But the fact that Maurice keeps the violin away from Cal are we to believe that's what drove Cal insane? Or is it simply just being able to play this violin, which Maurice introduced Cal to, you know? But playing the violin, to me, is what first made Cal infatuated. Though I guess we could argue, maybe what you're arguing is that the fact that Maurice kept the violin from Cal and just from any any uh, musician, that's what drove him over the edge. Which I think is, honestly, I do think that's probably a large part of why Cal was so, you know, out of control, like frustrated and couldn't control this frustration because this instrument is being kept and it's not being recognized as a piece of, I don't know, magic in a way. It's being kept as just like money. So I guess I can actually side with you now and say, yeah, I think I think the fact that Maurice is so, I don't know, but I don't think Maurice is wrong. Again, like you're saying, Charles, like this is a money investment for him. But just the fact that, this end of the spectrum of Maurice viewing it only as a dollar value and Cal viewing it as the most beautiful, like angelic instrument, uh, that sort of separation and disagreement is so polar opposite that maybe that could cause a rift in a person's mind. I don't know where the blame falls here. Yeah, it's definitely wrong for Maurice in certain ways, but he never signed up to, as a musician, he just signed up because it was some money. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I think it's, like I said, I, I think that there's an important distinction to be made if it kills the instrument, if he does mm-hmm. this. Because presuming if it works afterwards, then what Maurice was doing is simply keeping it for like a period of time. And then maybe it'll sell to another individual that will actually use it in the future. Mm-hmm. If we were to believe that this thing could only last however many years it could last before it broke down without playing and Maurice actually did that, then he's essentially killing the item and... Yeah, like killing an angel or something, yeah. And I think that is what the episode is trying... Even though 
I kind of pointed out, I think I read some articles that said you could warm the instrument back up and bring it back to life. I don't think that's ever suggested by the episode. I think in the episode, they're saying that Maurice is killing the instrument. Though by the end of the episode, he does break it out. He he keeps it alive by bringing it to that mental hospital and that letting is true. Cal play it. Yeah. So, so strange. Yeah. That is true right there. Which is kind of messed up. Well, yeah, I guess yes. like, <laughs> I guess he needs to. It's like a, yeah. It's like a symbolic, uh, a symbiotic relationship. Right. Like he, Cal needs the violin. He needs him to play the violin to keep it alive. To keep it the value. Yeah. It's so dark. It's so dark and twisted. Um, all right. Well, we had a bit of a little uh, departure here, but I think that is kind of this whole conversation that we're talking about, Charles, is the whole uh, question that Holling and Maurice are mulling over in this uh, tracking scene. And, um, you know, they don't settle on a solution or anything, but Maurice is trying to defend himself, saying, like, he brought it on himself. Cal brought it on himself. Anyway, they track finally to a barn, and Holling is certain. He says he can even smell. He's certain that Cal is within that barn. Maurice says, okay, Holling, go get Barbara Szymanski. I'm going to keep Cal busy, and whenever you guys get here, we'll arrest him. Maurice goes inside the barn, uh, cannot find Cal initially, but then hears uh, from below, Cal is calling up to Maurice. Cal fell through the floor and is trapped below under this barn. Yeah, he's finally found him in the most advantageous situation right here. He cannot get out. He has essentially captured him. So really, it's just a killing of time until the the cavalry comes and they arrest him. And this is where they started getting into their conversation between each other, where Murray says, you know, it's not going to be that bad if you get thrown into prison again and you come out. Lots of artists have gone through those things. The society manages to give you a lot more leeway. And, you know, maybe even the trials and tribulations that you go through in prison will help you in your music. And Cal tries to remark and tries to say, like, oh, no, like, I think that someone's making too much noise. It's too hectic. It's too crazy. But then he finally reveals, like, the main reason is that he can no longer produce music. His gift can no longer be here. So even if he did go to prison and then came back out... And then go join like uh, the orchestra at St. Louis or St. Paul, Minnesota, or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it wouldn't matter at the end because he suddenly lost his talent. Okay, yeah, this makes a lot of sense now. At first, I was very confused as to why Cal says he's giving up music because you said he mentions that it's like hard to practice at the mental hospital. People are too loud and screaming and this and that. But he does, you know, pretty plainly at the end of that scene say, I simply can't make music anymore. So does that mean, Charles, that he like, well, I'm confused because didn't he play music in that scene for Barbara's birthday? What is, is he like unable to play music now? Does he like, does he mean like he physically can't? Uh, I kind of wish they had one more scene to explain it because I had to read between the lines. Yeah. My understanding is that he has two scenes where he talks about how valuable the Guarneri is to him, Mm -hmm. how it's pretty much the fire for his soul. We are to presume that he needs that Guarneri in order to produce music now. Because when he is, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, because when he is at that mental hospital in the first scene, he's playing 
very different style of music. Not not really the same music he would be playing on the Guarneri. Right, right. Wow. And once he gets that Guarneri and he plays it, he realizes like, okay, this is that specific timbre that you can never achieve anywhere. And we are to believe that like between the time of then and where Maurice meets him now in the hole, he tried picking up a violin and playing it and then we are to assume that it didn't work or maybe he just consciously knows that he can't do it. He mm-hmm. cannot produce the music. And... That's where Maurice realizes that he's robbing an individual of uh, just uh, producing art. Yeah, that's, I think that's, yeah, I, I agree. This was kind of a little confusing for me, but talking through it now, I think that's exactly, it's the Guarneri without it. Cal doesn't feel like he is making music anymore. Like when he's playing the other things, it's not the same. And I always think about this as a musician, I play drums. What would happen if, I had an injury to like my hand or, um, you know, something that prevented me from playing drums or like worst case scenario, like the drummer for Def Leppard lost an arm. So he's a one-armed drummer, but he still plays. He actually uses like pedals and triggers with his feet to supplement the missing arm. As a drummer, knowing that like it makes sense on paper, I can see how it works, but it is vastly different than playing drums with two hands. I've always wondered... Would I be like Cal here if I suffered an injury that took one of my hands out of commission? Would I feel like I'm not making music anymore if it doesn't, if it isn't the same way that I've always done it? Or would I be more like the drummer for Death Leopard and just innovate and adapt and, you know, still be able to play rhythms, but not in the same way? I guess it would be like, like Def Leopard, but I don't know. It's very scary to think about. Apparently for Cal, he's come to a point where he can't even like pretend to himself that playing any other violin is music. He's, this is such a cursed instrument, man. It's so (laughs) dastardly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like it's kind of similar to like my voice in that Mm -hmm. I was a little bit worried that it would never be able to retain what it has uh, pre-surgery. Listeners that might not know, I had vocal cord surgery that removed the cyst that I had for my entire life. So I was afraid that it would fundamentally change the way that my voice would sound or uh, just uh, affecting the pitch. Uh, just really, I thought it would yeah. be a, maybe like a new thing. Even years afterwards, I don't have like a complete grasp on my voice. I can feel it whenever it goes high. I can feel it whenever it's not operating at its full potential. Um yeah, it's, it's a scary thought because it's tied to your identity. Just like your ability to play the drums is a large part of your identity that defines who you are, the way that I speak is something that's very important to me. So mm-hmm. in order to lose that was like a risky gambit right there. So yeah, I, I sympathize with what's going on with Cal. Yeah, such a scary thought. Um, and I think just seeing your example too, Charles, is... Even as a not like, well, you are a musician too, Charles, but even for people who don't play violin, we could, you know, this is a a feeling, a universal feeling of like losing something that's part of yourself and having that, having that whole idea being shifted, being changed and trying to adapt to that. Would you adapt or would you just give it up? Uh, I, I just wanted to also say before we leave the scene, I love, it starts off with Maurice asking Cal if he'd like a toffee. And he <laughs> tosses down a toffee for to Cal. And even though this is like 
Cal has lost and he's been caught. And he's talking about right now how he's kind of like lost his identity as a musician. He's going to give up music, perhaps. Even though this is all so dire and sad, I love how no one's angry in the scene. Maurice isn't angry at Cal. I don't think Cal is angry at Maurice. They're really just talking like pals, you know? It's, I don't know, like any other show could make heightened drama out of this. Almost seems like it would be a David Chase thing to do to make more conflict here. But they're just like talking like buds, even though the context or the content is um, kind of depressing, kind of sad. Right. It's a foregone conclusion to them. <laughs> like yeah. He's going to jail. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what they believe in. But like you said, like they, um, we get one last scene with uh, the two of them. And I think this is the best scene in the entire mm. episode. And in fact, I'm very impressed with the writing of what's happening here Yeah, because Barbara finally rolls up with Holly and they're saying like, all right, he's in there. I'm going to go in. I'm going to arrest him. And Murray says, uh, no, uh, actually Holly got it wrong. He's mm-hmm. not in there. And Holly finally realizes what's going on. And he's like, you know, sometimes I could be wrong. Maybe he's really not there. And Barbara can immediately see through it and mm-hmm. say like, no, like, I, it's a federal offense for you to <laughs> lie to me. So I'm going to give you one last chance to confess the truth. You're saying that he escaped. And Murray says, yeah, he, um, he's not there. And she says, you going to amend your story? And Murray says, that's what happened, Barbara. That's like the best line right there. Yeah. <laughs> I love, again, how Szymanski is bending, like she's... Letting Maurice get another shot, get another shot. And um, it's implied here that if Maurice, you know, breaks the law, it's going to break their relationship. Or, you know, if he doesn't tell the truth, that's going to break their relationship. And I love also the acting here by Barbara Szymanski. We can see in her eyes that she's about to cry. You know, this means a lot more than just apprehending Cal. It's that trust that uh, Maurice placed here. But also... For Maurice, it means more than just like capturing this man because he tried to blow up my truck and he wants this Guaneri that I value. Now Maurice has a whole other outlook as well on Cal and perhaps wants to help Cal. Right. He realizes that he's got a fixed past and that's why he's amending his story. He's mm. changing it quite literally, even though it's going to ruin the future relationship with Barbara. Yeah. Or are you saying he is changing the past, the past of Cal, like giving him a second shot or also? He's they're, they're like changing their history of what mm-hmm. happened. Between so Maurice like, and Cal. Yeah. So yes. like rightfully he should be giving him up, uh, like according right. to the, like the law right there. He should be giving him up and him and Barbara will continue their way and their relationship will presumably thrive. This way he goes back to fix a problem that he caused. I think, I'm not too sure if the show means it this way, but presumably we're to believe that Maurice was in the wrong mm-hmm. and now he's riding the ship. Yeah, I think that's what the show is trying to say. Um, and especially even in um, Might Makes Right. I think they're trying to do that. It's such a dark ending for Cal. Like they're crushing the soul of the artist, you know? Maurice is crushing this artist's soul. I think um, there's a lot of ways, we've talked a lot of ways around this uh, problem and this uh, argument, and there are a lot of ways to look at it, but I think the way the show is presenting it is is, is that. Um, the We do get a bit 
of Cal in the very end. He's like fiddling, violining in the moonlight. You know, he's out on the lam, not in the mental hospital. You know, he's made it out and presumably has the Guarneri del Jesu. I don't know. Maybe he has another violin. I don't know what it is, but he's playing violin in the moon. So is it possible that um, Maurice gave him the Guarneri? Also, Joel and Maggie hear it and they say, it sounds like Bach. So the the type of music that he might play with the Guarneri. I think it is because the very last scene is Maurice and he has a look on his face that looks like, he just, it looks like that he's, it just looks like that he sacrificed a lot. And it looks like that not only did he sacrifice his relationship with Barbara, he also sacrificed his investment. That's pretty neat. And I'm, now that we've talked about it here, I'm super excited for the third appearance of Cal Ingraham later in season six which we'll get to in due time. But uh, yeah, I I love this continuation. Would not have expected, like if you gave me the chance to write a spec script for Northern Exposure, I don't think I would have tried to continue Cal's storyline, but I love that they did and they were really able to draw so much from a continuation of this character. All right, Charles, let's bring it back to the beginning for our third, our final plot line for this podcast, uh, this podcast episode. It's Joel and the mammoth and that whole uh, that whole investigation here. As we mentioned, he finds the frost defrosting, uh, thawing corpse of a woolly mammoth. And uh, the next time we see Joel thereafter, Holling is here with him to photograph the findings. Holling is focused on birds. Of course, we know he's a bird watcher from previous episodes, while Joel is dictating into like a little uh, micro cassette recorder. Holling is... Um, Instead of photographing the woolly mammoth, he's trying to take pictures of a rufous-sided tohi, which is very unusual to spot here. That's the same bird that they were looking for in that episode with, uh, it's like Maurice, sorry, it's like Hauling and Ruthann doing the the bird watching. They're looking for that specific bird. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. But I I think he, in that episode, Hauling finds it or something, but Ruthann doesn't. Something like that. Anyway, Hauling sees another one here. Yeah, that's pretty much that scene. Like we just get the setup that what Joel has found, obviously we we don't get a lot of dialogue in that opening, but in this scene with the dialogue, what Joel has found, he verbally says is, you know, probably the largest preserved animal species in North America. Yeah, I, th- I do think there is one important line of dialogue in this in that Joel asked Hauling to try to imagine what the earth was like so many years ago. Mm-hmm. So now we're getting the third plot line of people digging back into the past. We have Meredith and Chris. We have Cal thinking about the violin. And now we have Joel thinking about Earth and prehistoric times. Yeah, literally going back in time and bringing, uh, you know, it's kind of reminds me of uh, the fish story episode where they talk about how... Um, Goonie, that giant, like basically like the Loch Ness monster of Sicily. Uh, they say that it was perhaps frozen in some glacier and that has thawed and it's like this prehistoric monster that uh, the past is coming back to the present in Sicily. It's preserved in ice in a way. And this is literally happening with this woolly mammoth now. And Joel, as you said, is musing on prehistoric times going back in the past. Uh, to continue this storyline, You know, the next time we see Joel is, we talked about it, he's uh, talking with Chris about these perceptions, these projections, 
you know, that whole idea. When he leaves Chris, it's because Marilyn says that um, this professor from Pickering, or no, no, sorry, his name is Pickering, but this professor from a nearby university is on the phone. So Joel can go take this. I, I wrote it down because it's funny. Um, Joel goes to take the call. He's like, oh, great, Marilyn, let me take the call in my office. And she says, uh, it's going to be on line one. Do you remember from season one, whenever Joel's like, there's only one line. <laughs> <laughs> so the, jo- the joke is continued here. Of course, now, I guess this ties in with the end of his plot line, how he's sort of like acclimated here. Now, Joel doesn't have that same reaction anymore. And in, in the first season, if you would have told him that the call is on line one, he would scream at you and say, there's only one line. That doesn't make any sense. Now, uh, Marilyn can tell him that the call is going to be on line one and he doesn't bat an eye. <laughs> I forgot about that joke. <laughs> well, the next time that we see them is with that professor. We meet Professor Pickering, who does not look like what you would imagine a professor would be like. And I think it's for good reason. I don't think he's a fraud or anything because they explain it and say like, the reason he shows up here in very casual clothing and with no equipment is because he's done this a lot of times in his life. He's gotten the call that someone's found a fossil or a mammoth and he went out there heavily loaded with all these tools and it turns out that it was a false report. So he really just did a bunch of work for nothing. So now he just travels light, wears very casual clothing. And if he needs the equipment, he'll just phone somebody. And say like, hey, we actually did find something. Right. So we learn Pickering is not very trusting of Joel. I think in the next scene, Joel, well, we can talk about that in a second, but we can see Joel is not very trusting of Pickering or not like <laughs> not um, confident in, in their credentials, maybe. I just wanted to say, you mentioned uh, he's dressed very casual, Pickering is, but he has like this wild hair, some tie-dye shirt. He kind of looks like a caveman to me, I would say, just the hair. Right? Hmm. It's like crazy. It just looks like caveman he, hair. Thought he looked like a hippie to me. Yeah, the tie-dye for sure. So uh, like a like a caveman hippie or something. Anyway, uh, the next scene, Joel and Pickering are driving up to the site. And as they're unloading the truck or getting ready, getting out of the truck, Joel is beginning to question the credentials, as I said, of this professor asking like, oh, your background's ornithology? Why did they send you out for this, you know, this mammal or whatever? Pickering says, you know, it's a small university, like it's a small department. Uh, Joel begins to talk about, you know, maybe we could solve the Pleistocene paradox if we can look inside of this mammoth's uh, digestive tract. We can, I don't know, I'm not entirely um, familiar with this idea of the productivity paradox, this Pleistocene era. It doesn't matter to me, really. I think uh, I just noted it down because uh, Joel is nerding out about all this stuff only to figure out that this biologist who presumably should know all about this knows even less than just a doctor. Right. And he brings up something very interesting where he says like, you know, this is uh, not really what you think of when you think of history because a mammoth is simply just a very hairy elephant. If you really want to dig back into the past, (laughs) you got to go even before when the mammoths were here. And I think, I don't know if we've already skipped that scene or it was just like a very small line, but I think that Joel says like, the mammoths were here just like this time period that like mm-hmm. you think is so far away, but it really isn't. In fact, I'm pretty yeah. sure if, I, if I'm if i correct in my thinking, I want to say mammoths were still on the earth when Cleopatra was here. Wow. Let me see. Oh, okay. Got it. The woolly mammoth still roamed the earth while the pyramids were being built. That was it. Wow. 
Yeah. That's still pretty, uh, pretty recent. And you're right. There is a scene. Maybe it's the scene when Joel is talking to Halling, but it could be a, another scene where Joel is talking about like, you know, and the history of mankind the history of life, you know, it's not very far away. The, the idea that, a the distance between woolly mammoth and today is, uh, tiny in comparison to the distance between today and the beginning of life. Yeah. It's crazy how time works, how the past works. <laughs> uh, long story short, they, uh, they go to the site and the mammoth is gone. There's actually like tire tracks. So someone came in here with a vehicle and hauled it away. Which is what's going to help Joel find out where it went to. You're just going to follow the tracks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Professor Pickering leaves. Yeah, he calls and he's like, all right, I'll be able to make it for dinner. Like it was a false call. Right there. So that's the last time that we see this uh, very short guest character on Northern Exposure right here for at least a due time. And the next time that we see Joel is him pulling up to this shed that... There's like barbecue outside. Like you can already tell the meat is being scavenged. I thought that like at this point in the episode, I thought it was going to connect with Maurice's plot line because I thought like, wait, is that the same place that they found (laughs) that guy? Um, But then I realized I was like, no, um... What's, who's inside is actually Walt. It's Walt. I thought, yeah. um, before to just cut you off real fast, I thought it might have been the Telecutans again. Do you remember when they found... Uh, oh, really? You <laughs> just, like they're trying to like keep the past hidden or whatever. <laughs> the secrets like of the super, past. It's just like, Deus Ex Machina or something. Yeah, it sounds like, what is that thing where it's like, it's like that shadowy organization that tries to preserve... Yeah. It, X Files? Am I am I thinking of it it's right? It's like the Illuminati or something. Is that yeah, what you're saying? something like that? <laughs> anyway, yeah, it is Walt. Uh, he's carving up this mammoth. Uh, I got a little soundbite for this. The whole scene is great, but um, I guess before I get to the soundbite, I just want to preface: Joel is like freaking out at Walt, screaming to him, "Are you kidding me, Walt? Years you knew about this for years, and you didn't tell anybody." Well, that'd be counter to my interest, wouldn't it? Have you ever tried Mammoth Joel? Tried? What do you mean try? Tried as an eat? Better than the finest air-dried beef. Grill a three-inch filet with onions, peppers. Marilyn likes to jerk it. Put in that teriyaki flavoring. My favorite part of that is Joel uh, to Walt. He's saying, try? What do you mean try? Try as an eat? <laughs> Have you ever tried it, Joel? Don't knock it till you try it. He's like, you want me to eat this? <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Uh, it turns out that he is eating the mammoth. <laughs> <laughs> so like carving it up. He's got like a year's worth of brisket or whatever. I think he even mentions he gives the tusks to the Raven clan. Mm-hmm. Uh, they make trinkets out of it. So nothing is going to like, not even the tusks will remain after this. Right. And you know, you're getting somebody that's like throwing away the future by just eating this mammoth right there because joel wants to use it to find out like the secrets of the past mm-hmm. yeah he wants to do that but walt had you know finders keepers i guess he said he's uh he said he's had his eye on this for years <laughs> uh i still think that's kind of messed up i guess so, like let's presume this is all true and like you can truly find like the keys and the secrets of the universe through this one mammoth right here this isn't the only mammoth that's out there. Presumably you can get other mammoths, like Walt said. They're just like pieces of it though. But you can still eat those other pieces. But this one's so intact yeah. that like that's what makes it valuable. Yeah, it's it's pretty messed up. It's pretty silly that Walt decided to just eat this whole thing rather than uh notify it to somebody that there's a whole <laughs> mammoth here. Because he's found mammoths, like he's like, Yeah, mammoths are here all the time, but he's just found pieces. 
feel like you would you would make a spectacle of that if somehow Maurice definitely would, but I guess Walt's the type of person. Maybe it has to do with kind of what you're saying, Charles, where Joel is wanting to pull secrets from the past. Walt has no concern for that. He's, I guess he's at an age now too, where he's just living each day as it comes. <laughs> so destroying the past even, and future for, for the present. It's not legal, right? To eat elephant. Like I'm pretty sure that's like oh, big yeah. time illegal. Well, this is, we already talked about this, but Alaska has its own laws according, or Sicily has its own laws according to the show. Some some crazy stuff goes on here. You definitely unchecked. get arrested if you like <laughs> try to look for like elephant meat. Like, I know you can get some pretty strange meat on like uh, specialty meat stores. But, like, I really don't think you can eat right. elephant. Like, I'm pretty sure that's a protected species. <laughs> like, well, I know, yeah, because poachers in the ivory and stuff. Yeah, so for sure. Well, that's not our last scene with Joel. The last time we see Joel is with Maggie. I wrote down, oh, Maggie's in this episode. She's actually in a deleted scene. Probably would have come earlier in the episode where. Joel is again at at Maggie's house and she's using like a ruler and a pencil and like drawing on some maps or something like sort of listening to Joel, but she's very busy with something. And Joel's just talking about this discovery that he found. Um, It's worth watching. It's some fun stuff because um, Joel is like, you know, all in his head about this. And Maggie's just like, relax, man. Like, this is fine. Uh, Joel, Joel says something like, no, Maggie says, you know, like, what is the big deal about something from 10,000 years ago? And Joel's like, well, it's not 10,000 years ago. It's 11,000 years ago. And Maggie's like, are you being serious right now? Did you do that on purpose? And Joel's <laughs> like, what? It's just funny. Uh, they're sort of like talking back and forth. Though uh, I'm kind of selling it short. Maggie is sort of supportive of Joel here and she's kind of excited for him, but she's got her own thing. Check it out on the uh, DVDs if you'd like. But um, but yeah, this final scene with Maggie, I think, is a is a great capstone to the season uh, because um, Joel uh, feels finally that he can relate to the the way the way life is here in Sicily. Like normally, Joel from season one would be uh, destroyed and uh, so enraged at this now he says he just feels like he wants to laugh i feel like i'm floating like i'm watching myself leave my body i think about what happened today and i just i want to laugh well that sounds healthy i should be foaming at the mouth like any other normal person maybe what i'm experiencing is that euphoria you're supposed to feel just before you give up. You know, just let the lungs fill with water. Life's a mystery. One man's life-altering experience is another man's tenderloin. What's all this about? I'm one of you now. I'm a Sicilian. Yeah, it's an odd way for him to finally accept that he's a Sicilian, which is through defeat. It's not if he like (laughs) Victor or anything. He's essentially saying it's like, all right, when you when you give up on life and you just let it just (laughs) let the despair take over you, that's when I can finally accept being in this place. And it's like it's kind of an odd way to approach it, but I I, I like the I like the sentiment. I I think I mean it's that, sure, but I think it's something about not necessarily defeat, but the way Walt views this is a is a lot simpler. He's viewing this as food uh, instead of like some worldwide discovery. He's just living his life as if he's in the middle of nowhere. 
And what he does is not going to like change the world, but he's just going to have a good time. And I guess as Sicilians do, you know, keep their friends happy, you know, he's just trying to, to do right by the locals, I guess. He's not worried about world science, um, which is sad to think about, especially if what you're saying, Charles, is like, if we could presume that, you know, world changing, uh, we don't know if this is even true, but, you know, if we could solve that uh, productivity paradox or whatever, you know, the answers of the universe could be within this mammoth, perhaps. Sad to think that it's just gone, but in the long run, I guess, for life in Sicily, it's just a lot simpler than that. And Joel is connecting to that, I guess, just the simplicity of life here. Yeah, and I think that's what makes this have that finality tone to it right there. That's what really sells it as the season finale. Um, now that we talked about all the plots out loud, like I really like the things that they talk about um, and the themes and ideas, but I'm now I'm like a little bit skeptical of how they achieved it because it feels like they should have subbed out some of these scenes, put in some of those deleted scenes that we were talking about mm-hmm. to help set it up a little bit better. Yeah. The end product, the end result was still really well done. I, I still want to praise that line between Barbara and Maurice about amending the story. I think that's like really great. I think they knocked that out of the park. But yeah, some of these upon the second look. This very rarely happens too. <laughs> like, yeah. very rarely happens. But like, upon a second look, uh, I still think overall it's a good episode. I still think that is at least in the better half of the season finales. It's just that uh, I have a little bit of a different view of it now. Yeah. I mean, you be the judge. Go and check out if you have the DVDs. There's, as I said, two deleted scenes. Kind of briefly describe them, but I think it's better if you just watch them. But yeah, that's the end there with Joel and Maggie. They do have dinner later and they hear the Bach violin, which is Cal fiddling in the moonlight. Uh, during This is all kind of during Chris's Lovers and Mad Men uh, recitation here. I also wanted to point out during that sort of montage at the end, we get Walt eating, uh, <laughs> cutting it's into... Like a- the giant, the, he's, there's no way he's eating this whole steak. No, it's like comically <laughs> sized. <laughs> it's ridiculous. And he's like cutting a little piece out of it. Though it does have the peppers and onions. Like we in that sound bite, he says, have you ever had it with peppers and onions? It's perfect. Um, so he is eating it with green peppers and onions. Okay, Charles, now's the point in our podcast where we like to invite on a guest, someone who has typically never seen Northern Exposure before. But for the season finale here, We're bringing on a guest that we've wanted to get on for quite some time. Finally got him. This is uh, my old friend, Kyle. And Charles, he's also your friend too. I mean, this guy I met in high school, started making movies together, and we went to college together, a college roommate, made films in college together, and uh, still keep in touch. And I guess, I guess, well, well, once we get him on, we'll ask him, but I think... I think college might be when we started watching Northern Exposure together, but it could be high school. Uh, but anyway, Charles, we've got Kyle on the Zoom. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. So yeah, I guess since you are here, when was the first time you saw Northern Exposure? Well, like you said, I'm pretty sure it was college. Okay. We just ate it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we started it and just like one after the other after the other. I We've talked on the podcast before about our dorm room and like the projector setup. I've actually had like people write in being like, wait, what is, explain this, like what's going on? But it's like basically the coolest dorm, coolest dorm room in America. We made a movie about how cool it was. Yeah, we had a short film. <laughs> and we only been there for like a week. 
<laughs> it was already cool after one week. Yeah, we really like, yeah, we really decked it out. Charles, yeah, I mean, obviously we talked about this as well, but Charles, you visited uh, our campus and you like visited our dorm room while we were in college. Yeah, we talked about this before on the pod, but I still think one of my favorite stories about the dorm is uh, the one where you guys rearranged the tiles in the oh, elevator, yeah. even though the that was octopus. not within your right to do. <laughs> That's like, absolutely. I would, I would be so, like, at, at that age, I would be like, yeah, totally. Let's do that. But like now older as like the other side of the coin, I'd be like, what are these kids doing? Like, no, 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 don't do that. Like, no, that's, that's wrong. <laughs> these meddling kids. Yeah. I wish I knew which episode of the podcast that is. Cause we taught, I told the entire story about it. I think it's this season. It's definitely this season. It's somewhat recent. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to Northern Exposure. Um, yeah, Kyle. So uh, I actually can't remember. Have you seen all of it? Do you remember? Did you remember much watching this? I think for me, I don't know. I loved the show so much whenever we watched it in college. And I guess I kind of forget every time how much I love the show whenever I watch another episode. Mm-hmm. Like a few years ago, I showed some episodes to my wife, Louisa, and she, I don't know if she totally got it, but I was just like exploding yeah. <laughs> because I was loving it so much. And I just, I don't know, I watch it and it's just thrilling to me. And then I forget and years go by and then I come back and to review it is just like over joy. Yeah. So you never oscillate on your opinion on Northern Exposure. Like it always is like it remains good to great. Like that is the gamut of your opinion of the show every time you revisit it. That's my memory. And that's kind of I, uh, what's fun is I guess that's kind of the point of this episode. It's all like it's how memory plays tricks on you. But in this mm. case, I don't think memory plays a trick on me at all. Um, you know, maybe there's an episode that is a little lackluster, but I don't remember those ones. I only remember the, the, the good ones and like the the most positive experience. Yeah. I'd say even like bad episodes overall, just the show, the feeling of the show, like the way they, every episode almost has like its own message. There's definitely a lot to like absorb in each episode, even like the, the ones that aren't, that I wouldn't rate as high. It's just a great show. Whenever it first started and the music starts going, I guess it, you know, it has a little preamble with, mm-hmm. you know, starting with the golf swing. But whenever the intro began, I was just like, <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it's like moose antlers, moose antlers. It's like the whole town from the perspective of the moose. And I don't think that I ever really like took a minute to yeah understand that that's the imagery and that's what was being shown to me all yeah. these years having watched it. I never you know, it's so easy to just like skirt over intro sequences. Mm-hmm. It's like, Oh, I've seen it once and you just forget about it and skip. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. That really struck me this time. I definitely, I can't remember. I feel like I definitely, we would skip the theme song. Maybe we would listen to it all the way through, but I feel like we would probably skip through the theme song, but, um, even watching it through all the way, it definitely took some time to like even realize for me, like you're saying, uh, Kyle, it's like, yeah. Cause you see the moose like turn its head and then it's like, that's supposed to be like, you know, perspective, like it's, it's point of view is the next shot. And you see like, it's looking at the buildings and things. Yeah. It kind of, if you're not really paying attention, um, though, I don't know. I feel like Charles, like what really maybe reminds me all the time is like our guests who we ask on like the first, their first time watching it, they're very like, um, 
you know, scrutinizing every moment. So are they like taking notes, you know, the ones that do take notes. So they, so they'll comment. Everyone seems to comment on the title sequence. I think the music is, you know, goofy, but also uh, a moose, you know, this is fun. It's moose looking at its like dead cousins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the antlers, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea that you're bringing up, Kyle. This idea that it's um, encapsulating not only the time period in which it's shooting at, which is the 1990s, but the time period in which you were watching it, which is a little bit later than that. It was during your college years and everything. Uh, I'm kind of like in this um, rabbit hole of... Coincidentally, I was looking at two different pieces of things that were trying to capture a moment of time in which it was being filmed and or written. Uh, two of the examples, or actually three of the examples that I'm looking at right now was Jaws from Steven Spielberg, mm-hmm. uh, Look Back in Anger, the play by John Osborne, and Tokyo Mew Mew. And all of them had something to say much like the time period in which they were in. And if you were not, if you weren't aware of the context of it, I don't think you could fully grasp the themes and the decisions that the characters are going through without looking through that proper lens. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, Kyle, like, do you think that also reflects into Northern exposure heavily? Like this, I like optimistic view in the nineties. Does the optimistic view of the nineties reflect in the show? Um, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, well, I guess I don't know that I view it as necessarily optimism. It seems so meandering and exploratory, uh, you know, watching this episode, it was almost like a Linklater film. Mm-hmm. All these conversations crisscrossing, no one actually talking about the same thing, even though they're talking to like, there's two people talking to mm-hmm. each other, but neither are talking about the same thing in like almost every scene of this episode. And that's kind of more what I got from it. And like, you know, I haven't gone back and watched any other episodes recently. So I, I, don't know that I can say, but I mean, I definitely think it's, you know, it's kind of like a Joseph Campbell idea to me that uh, the the stories that are being told are reflective of their times. And then also of the author's perspective themselves. But then, yeah, that's another layer that you're talking about and when we watch it and then, and what kind of color that brings to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's all there, of course. Yeah. Charles, I think, um, I think there's definitely certain things that are very steeped in the 90s that, you know, are kind of soaking into the plot. But also, I've, we've said this a lot on the podcast, but this show is like, I guess, sort of progressive for the 90s, you know, like ahead of its time, maybe is a way of, pu- of putting it. Maybe that's a bad way of saying it. But um, but also just like it, it, it kind of does feel timeless in certain things. Certain things do date it. So it's hard to say. I think that applies, though, in, in certain uh, – I'm trying to think of – I think it was in the last episode, Charles, where they were talking about, like, that single-payer healthcare system or whatever. Mm-hmm. That is definitely – there are certain things that, like, I wouldn't have keyed into unless I maybe was watching it at the time it aired, you know? Mm, yeah. Well, the reason I'm really hammering home on this is because it just occurred to me today when I was rethinking about the episode that there is an idea of uh, – objects or ideas being left behind and you see that on all three of the plot lines mm-hmm. you see it with the mammoth that melts away you see it in meredith and chris and then we see it with maurice and cow oh so what are the, what are they each leaving behind so i think that for the mammoth particularly the mammoth reflects joel leaving behind his new york identity and at the end he says i'm becoming a sicilian finally he mm. uses an analogy where he says that he's like 
getting filled up with water in his lungs. And though I talked about it before, I think that's very bleak. Yeah. I don't think that's like a very good uh, metaphor. This must be the use. feeling of like euphoria or whatever you get when you finally give up is what right he before says. before you die? Yeah, he's like, I'm giving in to being a Sicilian. <laughs> yeah, but I think that there's this idea that like when the mammoth melts away from the ice, so too does Joel have that same occurrence toward him. Mm. And you see it with Meredith and Chris. Meredith hops into her little RV we talked about with yeah. Lay. We weren't too sure what to call it. We're going to call camper it camper thing or something. Yeah. She hops into there and she looks at the rear view window and the camera is on her and it's a purposeful decision. And she drives away and she leaves behind this perception of what she thought Chris was. And Chris also sees the perception of what he thought she was. Right. And that leaves. Her final form is, is like beautiful once again. Right. Right. And then for the final plot line between Maurice and Cal he finally lets go the Guineri that he was going to try to use as an investment property. He wants to simply sell it, but for Cal, that's the way he enters the world. Mm-hmm. That is his way as an artist, and he needs that violin to create music. And so Maurice sets him free from the mental institution. He allows him to go off into the night and play with the moon in the background. Meanwhile, leaving Barbara behind. Yeah, oh, that's true. That's, yeah, good point. They're like, once again, they're... Uh... They're on the rocks, I guess you could say. Yeah, there's definitely, I feel like any episode, most episodes with Maurice and Barbara, they never end together. You know, they're always a thing, but then at the end of the episode, it's like, okay, they're not, you know, status quo, I guess, return to uh, them being being on ice maybe. But yeah, Kyle, uh, kind of talking about some of the plot lines here. Were there any favorite moments from this episode for you? Or also, I'm curious to know, do you remember this episode? I don't think I do. I don't think I remember watching it for the first time. I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I got all the way through, yeah. but the, the light, the last seasons, it's possible that I somehow missed, but Sixth I don't know. season is a blur for me. Uh, I think I've only seen it like once, but, uh, no, yeah, there's definitely some weird stuff going on in season six from my memory, but, uh, I, I too, I did not fully remember this episode. I did. I kind of remembered the mammoth. I didn't know that that was the season finale, but the violinist, did he seem familiar to you? Because this is his second appearance. Yeah, he was definitely familiar. But yeah, what are what are some moments that um, struck you from this episode? I mean, the first moments are pretty striking. You just, you have a, you swing in with some golf <laughs> and uh, then you fall into a mammoth. I mean, <laughs> that's pretty striking. It seems so different from... Uh, you know, every other episode that I could really recall, <laughs> yeah. you know, suddenly there's this mammoth and it almost feels mystical and mythical. And that's kind of, I guess, the scope of the episode that it's trying to to bring forth. It's like this, like the, I don't know, mystic chords of memory or something, um, you know, yeah. going all the way across time. And this is our place in it. It really sets the context. Northern Exposure likes to throw throw you for some weird episodes, and it's fun. It's always great when that happens in the very beginning, like that preamble that you're talking about, where it's like, okay, so this is this episode. It's gonna be a, a frozen <laughs> mammoth. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess having been a couple of years, every new scene towards the, at the front end of this episode really hit me hard because I was just revisit or like remembering all these characters that I had such fond memories of mm-hmm. like every single character, every single time there was a scene with a new character to the episode. It was like, 
that moment where you see this, this fond friend for the first time. Yeah. And at this point they're like super well-established characters, like with their own backstories and their own plot lines and stuff. And so it feels comfortable. They're comfortably in their skin and it just feels right when you see them again. It's like, oh yeah, it's an easy show to jump back into maybe. Uh, do you have a favorite character? Um, I guess, no. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, my first instinct is to say Chris and uh, Ed, but that yeah. might be just because they're the next uh, scene. Right. Uh, right. Now Maurice and Joel and Maggie. I mean, how the heck do you choose? It just depends on what scene you've seen most recently. Yeah. And sometimes like... Even I've found with doing this podcast, even the characters that I don't like, I, there are some plot lines that are my favorite uh, of the series. Like Maurice, I feel like has a lot of really good uh, little plots in a lot of episodes, even though he is kind of the, one of the most annoying characters at times. Yeah, I think him with the uh, the childhood house from Oklahoma. Yeah, I remember you. That you is that such one. a good episode. <laughs> like that is actually probably one of my favorite Maurice moments. And I think that the more I watch into Northern Exposure, the I guess like a little bit more forgiving I am of Maurice. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe like forgiving is not the right word. The more like tolerant I am. Like, you can understand. You're like, all right, he's a product of his times. It's the 90s. He's going to have, like, some deplorable views. You know, you you really just hope that, like, the coin flips out and he falls on the right side of being that fatherly figure, very strong, stern, uh, honorable individual. And then you pray that it doesn't fall on the other side where he's like a bigot. <laughs> yeah. So, Kyle, there was one thing that was really interesting whenever I was talking about this with Lee, where when Chris was describing Meredith for the first time, he uses a lot of language that depicts art. Uh, the Venus de Milo, Botticelli, all of those things have like a certain connotation to them. But why do you think they use that particular language choice? Uh, uh, Chris is describing this woman that he has this memory of and the he was, I guess, yeah, he was using descriptions that called upon classic depictions of women. And, you know, I was thinking about this a lot on my recent trip about how, like, why we are compelled, why men are compelled, especially to, to capture feminine beauty and like how that relates to the sex drive. And um, I guess this might be too much of a tangent, but love I'll it. just, I love it for it. Um, what I came down to me as I was thinking about it was, uh, you know, we, we've got this sex drive and, and we are so attracted to, to a woman and we're our, like the most natural expression of that attraction is procreation, you know, continuing that beauty. This is kind of what Chris is saying in the episode too. He's like, this is a, uh... What did he say? I didn't mean to cut in there. I think he says it's like a biological It's a biological imperative or something. Or yeah. Yeah. But continue. Sorry. I might actually be able to like find my note here. But yeah. So the most natural expression of an attraction is to procreate and to continue that beauty. But whenever you don't have that option, then the next best thing is art. Just an it's an expression of that primal yeah, feeling or something primal desire to to prolong or to um make eternal that beauty it's like i just want this moment this beauty this form that is like compelling me to last forever and i want that compulsion that feeling of compulsion to to last forever and so you know 
Michelangelo will chisel it in stone and Botticelli as well. And then Da Vinci will paint it. So it's a primal, a primal feeling that is expressed through this like complex piece of art. Though I do like in that same scene with Chris, where he's talking about how like, this is a, you know, it's not our fault. It's like our bi- biology, but Shelley is like, you know, like I've, I've felt like a piece of meat before, like I've done the beauty pageants and basically getting across the point that like, there's a, a point when that becomes like uh, discriminatory in a way. And then also Charles, you pointed out, I loved, uh, she talks about how hauling the, the difference between love and lust, like hauling is still going to love me when I get older. Maybe the Botticelli, the sculptures and like this, uh, the way Chris is seeing Meredith is more tied to lust is what we're suggesting in that scene. Mm-hmm. And he's, he's talking about things that are lasting forever mm-hmm. and his memory is not, and it's evolving over yeah. time. The art is like lasting forever. Whereas his memory, his memory is flawed. So he has to use those examples of timeless pieces of art. Mm. Really well said, Kyle. I liked what you had to say right there. Uh, I particularly like how you said that it's, um, it's something that we're trying to capture as the next best thing whenever you can't have it. But I think the great thing, or maybe like the most perfect thing about art is that it's made by people. And so even though you look at an art piece and you might not be able to comprehend it, it's made by people and it's meant for people to understand. So whenever you try to have this idea, this primal urge, uh, this natural imperative that Leah had said, when you look at it in a painting, you might not be able to understand it initially when you look at it, but you know that something deep down within your bones, that it's something that might speak to you. And maybe in that case, like the Venus de Milo, you can sense some sort of sensuality uh, that sparks within you and makes you want to act within. So if we look at it from Chris and Meredith, when he looks at Meredith, all he can really think of is like just her physical attributes. He's not thinking about any of her personality or anything like that. She, he's just thinking about the eyebrows, the way she wore that sundress, the way that her hair was. These are all things that he's just looking at on the artificial outside appearance of her, like looking at a statue. Mm-hmm. I love that moment with uh, Ned and Chris where um, Chris is cleaning up. He's never cleaned before. Yeah. <laughs> and Ed takes this to mean like, she must be worthwhile. You're cleaning. You're like taking an effort here. She must be neat, but he just, he doesn't mean neat as in clean, but that's what, that's yeah. the meaning that Chris takes. And then it's, <laughs> then that begins this whole episode of crosstalk. Yeah. I just love that. So I was like, Chris is just constantly like focused on appearance yeah, because he talks to Meredith and and she's like, well, she's talking to him all about like, I wish I had met you or I wish I'd known you better whenever we were younger. Chris is just kind of staring at her physical attributes and that is like a disconnect there. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't even paying attention. What were you saying? And then another moment of crosstalk that you're talking about, Kyle, that I can remember is like, it's Ed and Cal, like whenever after Cal has played some music for Barbara Szymanski. Ed and Cal are back in the kitchen eating the leftovers and uh, Cal is talking about the violin on and on. And Ed is like maybe nodding or he's pretending to listen, but he's more like, Oh, Hey, would you pass me the leftover Turkey or whatever? So that's hungry. Yeah. (laughs) And I feel like Northern exposure can do that often, but maybe very often in this episode where two characters are talking to each other, but completely different conversations happening at once. 
Right. And, you know, I guess that's something else that struck me. So you've got these like parallels with love and lust and um, Joel pursuing his, his love of knowledge and Mm -hmm. place in history. He wanted to be this great doctor and have a place in history. And now he's got a mammoth. Maybe that'll be his place in history. And then you've got um, Chris seeking this lust and this beauty and having this memory in history. And you've got Cal pursuing this violin as if it's a woman. Mm-hmm. Like the yeah. way he speaks about her, she, about this it. violin is a woman that he's lusting after. And then you've got hunger. So hunger and lust, you know, you, you got Ed hungry, you got the, <laughs> yeah. a Walt, the stranger in the bar. I was going to say, what'd you, <laughs> what'd you think about Walt, that giant steak that he's eating at the end? Just like the whole, like Joel catching Walt, butchering the mammoth. I mean, for me, I was as shocked as Joel. I couldn't believe that they would even consider making a character do that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really all gone right there. But yeah, I mean, it it, it gives us that final scene with Joel where he, uh, where Charles, you were saying he finally gives in. But I, I took I I like to look at it a little more positively though. He does literally say like this this is the feeling that you get right as you're drowning. You know, it's like. But um, I like how he was saying like I I I feel like I should laugh. Maggie says that sounds like a healthy reaction. And yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, he's not bucking against this feeling of feeling at home here, I guess. Is it giving up? Is that what it is? Is he giving up like the future of being this, uh, making this scientific discovery? Or is it more of like, uh, yeah, it is really messed up that Mammoth is gone forever though. I I think it's like the optimist in me and like the writer in me wants to make it to be like, you can frame the discussion however you want. You can use uh-huh. whatever similar metaphor that you need to depict Joel as accepting his Sicilian hood. But the way that the writer did in this episode <laughs> is that like he resigns himself to that fate, which I guess like fits into his character. Like Joel was like a curmudgeon and you never really wanted to be a Sicilian in the first place. And it took him yeah. five whole seasons to do it. So I, I can kind of understand it, but it almost feels like it's a step backwards. <laughs> it just <laughs> feels like up, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like one step forward, one step backwards. It's like, all right, like I can kind of, I get the sentiment. I'm on board. I'm just not too sure I liked how you got this there yeah they just like to do it like in a weird backwards way a lot the the writers like to kind of have it as a surprise or something i mean whenever you first meet joel in the show he's just such an Mm -hmm. he's such an to everybody and uh what's interesting is in this episode chris like memory and expectation make him and see monsters and kind of become perceived as a monster because he's only pursuing this like aesthetic lust mm-hmm. and Joel has this, his arc in the episode is to kind of let go of this memory and this history, this place in history and say, this is, I mean, and then it paints him as like a, you know, in a very positive light. He's just mellowed and chill. Mm-hmm. Wants to laugh after he's put this mammoth and uh, his New York dream behind him. Yeah. In a way it's like, we may have said this earlier, Charles, but it's like uh, he's like in the present, you know, not necessarily focused on finding future discoveries from the past, but just to live in the present. Again, it, it does. <laughs> if you, if you like think about it, it is messed up that this, uh, 
very possibly this mammoth could have, um, you know, yeah, could have, could have helped a lot of, uh, humanity, you know, <laughs> just like not only science, but I don't know, there could be a lot of stuff we could learn from it, but, uh, but no, I think for the character of Joel, he's, as you said, mellowed, he's like in the present. What do you think about this as a season finale, Kyle? I mean, it certainly made me want to watch more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it, this whole show is fairly unorthodox to like when compared to most shows. And so I guess it's unorthodox, but it's just what I would want. <laughs> yeah. I was pleasantly surprised with the, I guess because of that scene with Joel, he's like, I'm finally one of you. I'm a Sicilian. That feels like a good ending beat for a season, you know? Did they know if they were making another season at that point? I feel like, yes. So I'm not, I don't know for sure, but I feel like the show was still pretty popular. Maybe it was losing viewership. Definitely in the sixth season, I don't remember at which point, but at some point in the sixth season, they changed their, um, it's from Monday night to like Wednesday nights. And certain people were saying like, that is why there's such a drop in viewership. But I think it was already kind of like going down. But this episode aired uh, in 1994, May 23rd, 1994. And the first episode of season six aired, I think in September, maybe like 19th or something. So of, of 94. So um, yeah, September 19th, 1994. So I feel like they probably, you know, they were already starting to shoot more. Um, maybe they took a little summer break, but they probably already started shooting again in the summer. But yeah. Do you have any other uh, things you'd like to talk about? We can kind of wrap it out here soon, but if you have other notes. I guess the other notes that I didn't really catch the first time, um, Meredith, I didn't really realize. So I watched it twice. Um, I watched it once, mostly all the way through without pausing as little as possible to get a clean emotional arc, Mm -hmm. as clean of an emotional arc as I could without interruption. And then I rewatched it now. And I guess I kind of assumed that Meredith was the same actress with makeup. Yeah. And I didn't realize that it was three separate actresses. And that was kind of cool. The the second appearance of Meredith that when I saw her, I was like, oh, that's fun. They they changed her makeup. It took me a few seconds. And I was like, oh, wait, they did a completely new actress. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this is they're going to keep changing it each time. And they do, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. And then I love the the ending speech from Shakespeare that Chris gives. Yeah. Can't go wrong with Shakespeare. And it's just like the... <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Like the words are amazing. (laughs) It's Shakespeare. It's really good. It is. It's a perfect fit. And I understand uh, it conveniently fits with the title as well, because in multiple ways, but the most obvious Chris is the lover and Cal is the madman. Though you could, you could apply those terms to a lot of different things, you know, in the episode. Well, yeah, we could talk on and on about Northern Exposure and, uh, hey, maybe in season six, Kyle, we can get you back again. Kind of in, uh, we, Charles, we're going to talk about this in our, in our season five retrospective, but kind of thinking about for season six, maybe, maybe season six is for the fans. Like people who have seen the show need to come on and give their opinion of, of what happens in season six. Uh, so the, the door's always open for you, Kyle. Thanks for um, hopping on with us here. Really glad to finally get you on. And I'm really glad that this was like such a great episode and one that you really connected with. Uh, I was excited. I think you texted me right after you watched it, which was before I rewatched it. But uh, you were like, wow, I'm so glad 
I watch this episode like right now in my life. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming oh on. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was really perfect. That's awesome. Uh, we're definitely gonna have to get you back later, but Charles, yeah, I guess I've already said it. Um, we're gonna be coming back next week with the season five retrospective episode. Maybe uh, talk about some fun ideas for season six, but of course, um, We'll be ranking like our favorites episodes, favorite moments in season five, a bunch of fun and games. Uh, knock on wood, I think we might even have a special guest for next week's episode. So definitely don't miss that. Um, Charles, do you want me to give you a, uh, it's probably not worth it because normally at the end of the episodes, I ask you to guess about, um, I give you the title of the next episode in the season and I ask you to guess what happens in that episode. Mm -hmm. Do you want to try to guess what happens in season six here? That might be fun. Yeah, sure. Why not? All right. So the, the season six premiere, which will be a long time before we get there, Charles, because we'll, we'll take a break at the end. But um, the season six premiere is called Dinner at 730. What do you think is going to happen? Season six premiere. It's a lot. That to, is a good a episode title. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been a fan of that. It's like very declarative uh, titles like that. So dinner at, is it 7 or 7.30? 7.30. 7.30. Well, food's used often in Northern Exposure to bring the community together, as food often is. So I'm going to guess that it's toward that direction, where the town is fractured in the beginning, like in the morning time. But then as the episode progresses, some sort of common theme, uh, it would be ridiculous for me to even guess what that would be. It could be infinite. But something is going to get them together so that by dinner time, they're all eating under the same roof. I don't remember exactly, but I have an idea of what happens in this episode. And it's definitely like an ensemble cast piece. So I think, I think you're like, you're, you're touching on something there, Charles, but um, we'll be checking that out next season, but tune in next week for our uh, season five retrospective. All right, Charles, I'll talk to you then. All right. I'll see you then. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Kyle for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.